the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. It is one of our rare triple headers today featuring Quiet Riot's Frankie Benelli, Tim Ripper Owens, better known for his days of, um, well, with Judas Priest, and last but not least, Ron Keel, who, of course, everybody associate with Gene Simmons and Simmons Records. And to get this uh, party started, it is Le Seul Unique, the one and only Alan Niven. Bonjour, monsieur. Comment allez-vous? Uh, très bien, merci. Et vous? vous? Oh, excellent, excellent. Uh, we are sitting here on the precipice of a 30-centimeter snowstorm about to uh, batter our poor uh, <laughs> Canadian souls. But uh, speaking of battering, let's get over to Frankie Benelli. Um, I'm going to ask you this. Years and years ago, we know the story, uh, mental health, mental health, I should say, went to number one and all those people at the record companies ran out to Sunset Strip and other places and signed up all these bands. What what were you doing at the time when Quiet Riot hit number one and and were your marching orders to, to go find a band like Quiet Riot or to go find the next band or were you not really in the game at that point? Uh, I was working with a, a band called Great White. We were signed to EMI USA and at the time that uh, Quiet Riot went to number one. We were touring with White Snake in the United Kingdom. Oh, so you, so you were already way ahead of the game. Now, at that point, was this past the time of having worked with Terry Nunn in Berlin? Yes. Oh, well, there you go. And and so, how how much simpler did it make it for you and Great White and 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 the White Snake kinds and and, the, and the, eventually the Guns and Roses? that a band like Quiet Riot reached number one? Did it open doors and, and, and let you sort of walk right in? Or was it just sort of a, a nice little novelty and business was just the same for you? Well, I like to think that we'd uh, already started to develop and earn our place in uh, the rock and roll circus. And um, obviously the fact that... Uh, Quiet Riot exceeded expectations of anybody um, and went to number one. Uh, believe you me, that meant that you know a lot of other labels were suddenly starting to look at you know what's the hard rock scene look like, um, you know who can we sign. Um, you know that always happens in Hollywood. It's that thing of if something's successful. Let's repeat it and just change it a little bit, you know, because hopefully that'll be successful too. Um, you know, but bear in mind too that Quiet Riot hit by covering Slade, and Slade had already had great success in the United Kingdom with those sort of heavy pop singles. Um, and my understanding was that the boys in Quiet Riot were you know, not that thrilled about covering Slade, but proof was in the pudding. Yeah, it really was. And uh, since uh, every show I have to uh, throw a uh, kiss nugget at you, do you know what that... I... What? What? This is the best part of the show. Uh, 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 oh, okay. <laughs> this is the best part. 
even kiss me quick. Even that's right. <laughs> even Steve Brown says that it's it's the best part when I throw kiss stuff at you and you dismiss me as if I, I was a a, a a a terrible young child. But okay, so do you know? Did you know that somewhere around the early '80s, or I guess around the Creatures of the Night tour era, uh, Frankie Benelli had been asked by Paul Stanley to join Kiss and to come down for a uh, rehearsal. Rehearsal never happened because he was in this process of doing the, the Billy Idol studio stuff and Quiet Riot was going to happen. And so he politely declined, but he could have been uh, the dog boy in Kiss or, or you know, so so there you go. He, he was almost a Kiss member and therefore uh, would have been uh, more revered than he is currently. Well, well, this is more revered. This is what I do know about Frankie Benelli. Um First off, objectively, a terrific drummer. Uh, yes. Really powerful, inventive, and steady. Really a first-class drummer. Secondly, this is what I know about Frankie Benali. Um, a few years back, there was uh, a tragedy in Japan uh, when a tsunami hit the nation and 20,000 people lost their lives. And an old school friend of mine who is married to a Japanese lady called me up and said, can we do something to help? And we discussed it, um, Heather, myself, and, and Graham Thomas. And we came up with something that might have been just a little ahead of its time. And we discussed doing a, a one-off um, concert you know, the, your, your typical one-off concert. But we came up with the idea that perhaps in this time and with the mediums that are available to us, we'd try and do a permanent benefit concert and place it on the Internet and not handle any money, but put up three or four organizations on the site who we knew were bona fide and genuinely helped people in these situations, people like the Red Cross. And then our next idea was we got on the phones and started calling people and said, look, in this day and age, let's try something novel and different and draw people to the site and encourage them to donate. And what we want you to do is we want you to get your phone out, pick up an acoustic guitar and do something live and of, of the moment. And we'll post all these videos as a super concert permanently there on digital on on the medium and uh, you know paul rogers was either the second or the third pm person who did it and he just put his phone up picked up a guitar um and sang seagull for us um buck and evans were fast roseanne cash was there immediately and i got a hold of frankie benali and i said you know do you think you might be able to do something and Frankie went into his studio, set up cameras, did lighting, went the full bore whole hog and produced an amazingly filmed performance by himself on his amazing Japanese built drums because he, his drums come from a company called Canopus and they're hand built for him in Japan. And bless his heart, he went that far and that's what I know about Frankie Benali. He's a good drummer and a really good soul. Yeah, uh, I will 
absolutely uh, agree 100% with that. And in fact, uh, I might have told you this, but when my daughter was born back in 2003, um, a lot of these, a lot of, uh, I'm just going to say rock stars, for, for just to, to move the conversation along, sent over emails and congratulations and wait, way to go. And But Frankie sent over an entire outfit uh, for Jada, for well, for my daughter to wear, and so that that was very touching and very special as well. So you know what? Let let's give uh, Frankie his due. Quiet Riot, One Night in Milan is the new CD. It is available right now. You don't have to wait. And I did say CD because I am old, but yes, you can go to Spotify and all those other wonderful places. Uh, here is, without further ado, a great soul, the one, the only. Frankie Benelli. We are speaking with a quiet riot drummer Frankie Benelli. Of course, a new album is One Night in Milan live. Frankie, absolute, absolute pleasure to chit chat with you today. Always great to talk to you, my brother. Yes, absolutely. So let's 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 get this stuff out of the way. We've got this new album, and then I've got other questions for you. I want to find out about Frankie after that, but um Talk to me about recording this album live. You know, the, the, the suspicion when you talk live albums, whether it's a Kiss album or a Scorpions album or whatever album, they go, well, they went into the studio and they fixed it all up. And by the time it comes out, it's really a studio album with crowd noise. What's the story on this Quiet Riot one? Is this live in Milan or is this live from a studio in somewhere in California? <laughs> well, to give you an idea how live it is, uh, when Frontiers Records uh, approached me about doing the Frontiers Rock Festival in Milan, um, and then also approached me to possibly record it for a live record, I only had, with regards to the recording, I only had one condition, and that condition was that they would not ask me uh, to get the master tracks and go into the studio and fix anything. Um, because... By definition, to me, the minute you go into the studio and fix even one thing, um, it, it no longer um, ceases to be a live record. And, uh, you know, it's like some, some people rationalize and say, well, you know, you want to give the fans the best you possibly can. And I, I agree with that. And we gave the fans the best we possibly can on that night to go into the studio and uh, fix all the lead vocals and add, you know, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for background vocals or Mama, you know, we're all crazy now or fix guitar solos because something got unplugged. Um, you know, none of those things were were something that I cared to do. And even even with the fact that that uh, unfortunately they didn't think ahead and have audience mics. Um, so it's very difficult to really hear the audience as we heard them on stage. Uh, we still didn't pipe in, you know, the uh, the audience for the Rolling Stones. There's no NFL. Uh, what was the the joke about the Kiss one that they use the NFL crowd noise from from whatever for a yeah. live or a live? So there's no yeah. NFL crowd noise. Um, so okay, talk because to me. Because if you want the best, you want the NFL. That's right. So so talk to me about about this lineup here because you you have cost been out with different lineups that have also included Jizzy and Paul Shortino and of course uh, the well-respected Kevin. Uh, but but talk to me about this lineup, this guitarist, this bass player, this singer. How is it different? How does it compare? And, you know, at some point you have to gel, right? It's not just about the songs. It's about locking in as a musical unit. Where are we in that? Are we, are we a machine at this point? 
Well, I, I think we are. I believe we are. I think proof of that is is how tight the live performance uh, One Night Live in Milan is. I think, uh, you know, whether whether you like it or not, I think people will have to admit, uh, whether openly or secretly, that, you know, that's a really, really tight band. When I decided to go ahead and start this up again three years after Kevin passed away, uh, the last lineup that we had with Kevin included Chuck Wright on bass and included Alex Grazzi on guitar. And those, those, that was a really, really good lineup. Uh, that lineup for, I think, for about three years, we toured solid. Um, and, and everything was great, not just as musicians, but as people, which is equally as important. Um, and understand that Rudy Sarzo is, is my best friend. We've been, we've been best friends since 1972 when we met. Um, and, and we still get together all the time. So there's, there's no weirdness there. He's a big supporter of Quiet Ride and he's a big supporter of what I do to keep Quiet Ride alive. So understanding that, uh, those are the people that I, that the first two people that I brought into the situation. And, uh, at, you know, listen, Quiet Riot, it's, it's, a, it's a known fact that it's been a revolving doors of musicians. Um, while we were recording the record, before we recorded the record, um, almost immediately after we did the Condition Critical Tour, um, uh, you know, Rudy left the band, so that was a change then. So there's been change in this band pretty much from day one, so I don't know why people are so surprised at it. Um, and with regards to the singers that preceded, uh, James Durbin, it's like anything else, you know, uh, you go out on a date and, uh, and everything seems great because everybody's on their best behavior. Uh, but at some point you find out what people are really like. And, uh, and I'm a big believer that if you have a cancer in the unit, remove it as quickly as possible because that spreads. It really does. So, so then talk to me just quickly about James himself as a singer, I mean, I know that he had done a, a, a project with with Alex, and, and and so he might have been recommended. But in terms of vocalists, what does he bring? Because, listen, you can't replace Kevin DeBro, and and to even think that is is silly. But you can certainly give it a hell of a go, and James gives it a hell of a go. Um, what does he bring vocally and to his approach and stylistically that you like? If you know, if you were if you were on American Idol and judging him, uh, what would you say about his vocals? Well, firstly, I think I think it's important to understand that I sat behind Kevin on the drums for 27 years. So it was never a case of replacing Kevin. Kevin um, is irreplaceable. There's no one like him. Absolutely. Uh, and there'll never be and there'll never be anyone like him again. Having said that, my desire to continue was always based on bringing to the audience, uh, and if we recorded, the best possible uh, choir ride that I could. Uh, so keeping that in mind, um, what happened is when I found myself, well, we were recording the Road Rage record, which came out August of 2018, uh, and I found myself once again in need of a, a lead vocalist. Alex suggested James because the two of them um, already knew each other and had a friendship, but were actually working on a project together. So immediately I took a track um, that wasn't intended for the Road Rage record, but it was a, it was a choir ride song that Neil Citra and I had written, um, and it didn't have any vocals on it, and I sent it to him. Uh, and to Alex, because they were both working in the studio at the time. And in 24 hours, they returned the track to me with uh, brand new lyrics and melodies and a guitar solo. Um, and I heard it and I said to, said to myself, yeah, this, this feels right. This sounds right. As far as James's um, abilities, 
so far, he's the only singer that I've run across uh, in the Holy Grail search, you know, for, for the right singer in Quiet Riot at this point in time. He's the only one I've heard that's got the range um, that can do some of the things that Kevin did, because as everyone knows, anybody who's heard Quiet Riot and has heard, obviously, Kevin, he had a ridiculous range uh, way up there in the sky and, and all the way down to the gritty bottom. Um, and James does have that ability, uh, that ability. So we're really fortunate in that regard. But the other component of it, as far as as um, the the singing and the live process, was performance. And you, Mitch, know better than anybody how much Kevin enjoyed being on stage. He worked every single inch of that stage, whether it was a, uh, a ten foot wide stage or whether it was a mile wide stage. He worked every inch of it. He really loved it. He was a ham. And he really loved being up there. And James is also a great entertainer. He has a he has a, a lot of fun being on stage. It's not a put on. Um, I mean, he's like a kid uh, out, out on the field. He's just having a wonderful time. And he does have that energy because he's young. Um, and so that was very important. Uh, but bottom line, at the end of the day, all those things can be great. Uh, but if you cannot get along with the person or if, if everybody can't get along with the unit, um, it's, it's going to be short lived. I mean, it's, sometimes it's short lived because that's just the way life is. Uh, but if the people are not getting along, it's simply not going to work. And, uh, and so far, so good. Yeah, so far, so good. And and I have to say, by the way, at this point in your career, it's got to be nice to have that freedom to move the band in the direction you want and how you want. Because I know in the past, or not necessarily with Quiet Riot, but with other bands, you know, record companies will come in and go, no, 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 you're not changing this guy. No, 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 you're not putting out this single. No, 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 you're not. And and you're at this point where you can say, hey, you know what, Frontiers, we're going to do a live record and it's going to be actually be live. And if I wanted to change this guy for this guy... How, by the way, how how refreshing is that now to know that you can really put the band forward in the vision that you think is suits, the, you know, suits it best? Well, you know, the greatest ability um, for a person to have is the ability to say no and mean it, not have it be a bluff, but the ability to walk away from something. Uh, and And that's been my mindset in my career my entire life. Um, and understand that I have an incredibly great relationship with everybody at Frontiers. I mean, every, every single one of them, Serafino, Mario, Elio, all of them, we get along really, really well. Absolutely. Great uh, people. Comes, yeah. But when it comes to negotiating, there were certain things in, in the, in the deal that, uh, that were just not going to work for me. And, uh, and, you know, we negotiated it until, until everybody was happy, but with the understanding that, that there were certain things that had to change or I would walk away from the deal. Um, and, uh, and that happens now, you know, sometimes events are offered to me via my agent. And if it's not right for choir riot, um, I won't take it now understanding also at the same time that, um, I'm an equal opportunity musician in that, you know, some, some people look down at a band, they'll ignore if a band plays a festival for 50, 60, 70,000 people and only key up on the fact that you're also playing clubs, you know, and, and, you know, oh, how the mighty have fallen. My position is if the only venue that there is in a certain market is a club, then, and if they want Choir Riot and they're willing to bring us in, then I'm going to play it simply because there's people there that want to see Choir Riot. So, you know. 
Yeah, and and as you, you should, and and we'll we'll touch upon this real quick, and then I want to ask you some 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 Frankie questions. But uh, Heavy Montreal is taking place at the end of July, and guess what? Uh, a few months ago, they they asked me which bands would you like from blah blah blah, and they suggested a bunch of names, and one of them was Quiet Riot, and I said, "Well, sounds good to me, uh, <laughs> right?" Thank you. That's, why not, right? Uh, and I'm not, and yeah. not going to mention the other names because, first of all, I don't know if they're on the bill or not yet. But um, talk to me about coming to Montreal and and playing at a festival, and 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 also just having that ability to still get these festival dates and and bring the music to you know thirty thousand people. It, it's going to be absolutely spectacular. And and you've been to Montreal before. It is such a wonderful city, especially in the summer. So just quickly on Heavy Montreal, and then some Frankie questions. Well, doing Heavy Montreal that that was uh, that was a thrill. And case in point, I went on their uh, I went on their website, and and you know generally speaking, according to them over a weekend that there would be over 70,000 people. So that's, Correct. you know, those, those are, those are the, the situations that, uh, that quiet Riot is comfortable playing in. Uh, and, but a lot of people want to overlook and say, you know, they're only doing clubs. Um, going to Montreal is fantastic because first of all, I, I, I love that city. The city is incredibly beautiful and incredibly full of history. The food is absolutely amazing, but, a thing that always stays with me is that no matter what has happened in the career of Quiet Riot and the history of Quiet Riot, Canadian fans have always been so overwhelmingly great to Quiet Riot. When you when you take into account that every Quiet Riot album that went uh, platinum and then double platinum and then triple platinum, it did the same thing in Canada. And when the Come On Feel The Noise um, single uh, went gold in the United States. It went gold in Canada. It was it was tandem. So the fans there have been absolutely phenomenal to us. And what's really great for me this year is that I wanted to concentrate and and, and do more shows in Canada if it was possible. Um, and my agent got in touch with this Canadian promoter, and we're actually going to play more cities and more venues and more festivals in Canada this year that we've done since 1985. Oh, it's going to be great, and and I'll move off heavy Montreal real real quick. But the the site where it's on, it's called Parc Jean Drapeau. So they, the, you know, mm-hmm. they just invested seventy six million dollars to renovate the site. It is, oh my gosh. yeah, and it, it in fact opens in May, and you can go to their to their website and watch the, the you know every. It is spectacular. It, it is now a natural amphitheater that's going to seat 65,000 people with all kinds of movable parts. So that the, you, you will be the first hard rock band to play Heavy Montreal in this new $76 million upgraded site. So it is going to be um, spectacular. It, it's, you, woof, it's going to be spectacular. Um, I tell you, everybody, excuse me, everybody that I've dealt with uh, with, uh, with the Heavy Montreal show have been absolutely fantastic and so enthusiastic about it. I have at least a dozen emails going back and forth. You know, I have questions for them. They have questions for me. Um, and, and every single one at some point in the email, it's not at the same place, so I know it's not part of their sign-off. At, at some point, they always mention how excited they are about Quiet Riot playing it. So, you know, that's 
that means the world to me. You know, that just absolutely means the world to me. Yeah. Uh, Jean-Francois is, is, is great. Um, so let me ask you this, because we, we have done many interviews over the years. We've spoken off the record many times. So we've talked about, you know, the Crimson Idol and why isn't 10 on CD and blah, 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 and Jizzy Pearl. And we've done all of that. But some of the things I've, I've never asked you is, where did Frankie Benelli decide to play the drums what was the epiphany was it a tv show was it watching the beatles was it watching kiss was it where did you sort of say no i'm not going to pick up a guitar drums are for me no i'm not going to be a doctor drums are what was that moment what was that age where you said yeah i'm into this yeah that's that's the easiest thing to answer because it's it's as alive in my mind uh as when it happened you know my whole life revolved when I was living in New York, my whole life revolved around, you know, obviously I had to go to school, but my life revolved around in the winter playing hockey and I was a goalie and in the summer playing uh, baseball and I was a catcher. Um, and so as most households in, uh, in New York city and especially in Queens, Sunday, you went to church in the morning and then Sunday evening after dinner, you watched the Ed Sullivan show, you know, the whole family together in the living room my parents would be on the couch. I'd be sitting on the floor in front of the TV and the Beatles come on TV. And that was the first um, life changing experience for me because the very, very, I mean, that night is the night that I decided that I wanted to be a musician. I already had interest in music because I listened to it all the time, but didn't look at it as a career. Uh, but at that moment, um, I decided that that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I wanted to be a drummer. And the very next day, I had my father take me to the Bella School of Music. Um, I got my first pair of drumsticks and, uh, and I enrolled, uh, my dad enrolled me to take lessons because he insisted on it to make sure I was serious. Um, and I came home and I threw away the hockey stick and the, uh, and all my baseball team. That's right, Griffin. You there know. we go. See, the last interview we had, we had the puppies in there, and, and so that makes sense. Okay, so, so I, I want to ask you about then the, the, pare the parental support in all of this. How, how important was it? And, and, you know, was it, oh, hey, son, go, go do these lessons. It's a nice hobby. Now, when you're done, go study to be a doctor. Or was it like, uh, I will support you? And you know, How involved were they to, to, to make it easy to get to that next level? Well, you know, my father was, was a businessman. So I wanted, you know, of course, I wanted to, you know, when we went to the, the Bell School of Music, I wanted him to buy me a, a drum set right then and there. Uh, and he just wanted to make sure that I was serious about it and that, you know, perhaps I might or might not have the talent for it. So the deal was um, I would take lessons for a year straight. Uh, my teacher's name was Ernie Grace. And uh, at the end of the year, if I was if I was still taking lessons and I had gotten something out of it, he would buy me a drum set. Um, and a year later to the day, he came home and uh, and I put my hand out there and he goes, what? And he goes, my drum set. And uh, so, you know, that evening we went to the Bellis and I wanted, you know, Ringo played Ludwig drums. So I wanted this Ludwig drum set. And uh, but, you know. My father says, no, you, you're going to get this uh, blue set of Kent drums because they're made in New York. We only buy New York. Um, and he bought me the set of Kent drums, and I played those for um, for a year. Uh, and then eventually he bought me my, my first uh, Ludwig drum set. Wow, that's great. And Ludwig has been with you for almost ever since, right? Or, or since? 
Not no, not really. No. Here's what happened. Um, I had I had um, subsequent uh, Ludwig drums that I bought for myself. You know, all the way through school um, and and junior high and high school. And when I came out to L.A. and eventually we recorded the Metal Health record in, in 1982, um, I was using my own Ludwig drum set that I bought myself uh, for my birthday when I was uh, 18. And uh, and I was using my own Piesty cymbal. So the record comes out March of 1983, and I go to my first NAM ever, and I had the album flat, which for those people who are not in the industry, that's that's what the album cover looks like before they fold it up and put it together. So it's like just a big piece. And there was a three or four second audio dropout at this point, but let's get right back to Frankie Benelli. And and they didn't want to have anything to do with me, you know, even though I showed them that I had given Ludwig credit. Um, and I went to Piesty and uh, and uh, they were even more rude. <laughs> so. Um, that didn't happen to me for a long time. So I, I was endorsed with various companies until uh, first Pearl and then Tampa. Uh, and in 1995, uh, I endorsed Ludwig for about 10 years. But now I'm an independent. An independent. Okay. So so you, you move out somewhere around 1975. Was that an easy conversation again with the parents? Were, were they supportive and say, go for it and, and follow your dream? Or was it like, what are you doing? Come on. Well, <laughs> well. To, to give you an idea, a, a year before um, 1974, the beginning of 1974, one of the one of the greatest personal moments for me is I had done a little session down in Miami, um, and I had brought the cassette back, and I was in my bedroom listening to the cassette, and there's a knock on the door, and it's my dad, and uh, and you know, and I greet him very formally. Can I do something for you? And he goes, Yeah. Can I come in? I said, Sure. So he sat on the bed. Uh, and he goes, uh, what are you listening to? And I told him and, and he goes, Oh, play it again. And he sat there and listened to it, didn't say a word. And when it was done, he got up and he shook my hand and he says, you know, you're really, really good. And that was a special moment for me because six months later he passed away. So what ended up happening is, um, I left, um, I left school and, and got a job because once my dad got sick, um, everything stopped, you know, the income stopped, everything stopped. So I left school and I started working. Um, and after about a year of working and getting the finances, you know, all, um, right side up again, uh, my mom, uh, uh, came up to me and she said, listen, you know, uh, you're, you're the girlfriend that you have. She's not right for you. Number one, number two, if you continue to stay at this job, you're, you're never going to play music again, and you're probably going to marry this girl, um, and and you may not be as happy as you should be in your life, and uh, I think you should go out to California. And I said, you know, well, what about you, Mom? She goes, don't worry, I'll, you know, I can take care of myself. Um, so she was the one that that you know pushed me once again out of the nest. Well, so because usually the story is very different. Usually the mom is or the dad will be stop with your nonsense and come back here and, and, you know, go be a policeman or so you were doing sort of a, a dead end job. And your mom said, this ain't going to work. You got to go. Right. That, that, that's what I understood. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. There's a, wow. now there's, there was a wow. bit, you know, there was a bit of my father being the protective father and wanted to make sure that that you know I I would uh, I would be able to support myself. Um, he he really um, did voice his opinion that I should have something to fall back on, and and for a while I was taking uh, in in school and then uh, in college I was taking architectural drafting, and I really enjoyed it. I I mean I really enjoyed it. To this day, when I write with a pencil, I still constantly turn it so it has the same point, so the lines are always equal. They're not getting wider uh, or duller. And, uh, and I continued to do that for a number of years, but then I came to the realization that the music business is very cutthroat. Um, there's a very small percentage of people who make it in the music industry, and the percentage is even smaller for those that can sustain it. And I knew that if I had something to fall back on, if I had a safety net, the first time I was rejected, I may take that safety net. Uh, so I stopped doing it. Wow. Okay. So... Metal Health, of course, hits big, and it was a great moment for the band. It was a great moment for that music scene, because then after... I, I, I firmly believe that Metal Health was the album that launched the entire Sunset Strip, because that's when record companies said, okay, we got to go sign up the Poisons and the Bon Jovis and all these things. But other than that personal satisfaction of the career, how important was it to go home to mom and say... Yeah, we did this. You know, you and I did this. You pushed me out. We was there sort of this 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 moment of the team made it and everybody's proud? Well, sort of how I how I showed it uh because remember we were we were on the road when when the Metal Health record came out. It came out March 17th of 1983 and our first two dates upon the record being released was the 18th and 19th um, at the Roxy, two shows a night and all four shows were sold out. And then we went out and we were out um, just shy of a year straight. Um, but how I did it is when the money actually finally started to come in, um, I paid off my mom's house and then I bought her a new car. And then the house needed painting, uh, and that was taken care of. And the house needed a new driveway, uh, and she needed a new washer and dryer. So how how I shared the success um, for doing those, those things for her. Um, and But a great feeling was uh, she saw us play uh, at the Miami Hollywood Sportatorium. And obviously, you know, she passes and all that, but I was um the way oh. the the fans whoops you're 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 breaking up a little bit you're breaking up a little bit i don't know if you can adjust where you're standing but but go ahead um so i i got her um i had her backstage passes but i also got her uh fifth row center and you know all all the fans or as we called them back then all the kids were standing on the chair so she was standing on the chair and i could see her uh, from where I was playing. So she was just beaming, absolutely thrilled. I mean, I was, she couldn't brag about me more. As a matter of fact, I'm sure all her friends and everybody in Fort Lauderdale, where we had moved to, were probably tired of hearing my son Frankie from her. I can imagine. So was, was there a moment after that show or after you come off the road or even 10 years later where she said, you know, I'm proud of you, son. You, you did good. Like, or was it just sort of unspoken, like, yeah, we, you know, we, no, we got... No, no, you know, I made a point of calling her every single Sunday, regardless of where I was um, on the road. And, uh, and you know, every conversation began with, I love you, Mom, and every conversation 
and the width. I'm very proud of you, son. Wow, that is great. You know what? So I, I love that. And so I'm going to I'm going to leave it there um, because that is a great we always have we should end on positive and that's positive. Um, One Night in Milan, of course, is out now. The band will be in Montreal for Heavy Montreal. So for all my American listeners, you got to come up. It's a great festival. And of course, you will be playing all year long, right? There's no there's no six months break for Quiet Riot. No, no. I mean, um, there's no stopping for choir. Right? Even back in 1980, when I first started playing with Kevin, we were always and we continued to release new music. And as a matter of fact, um, we're in the studio right now recording uh, new original material for a uh, follow-up um, studio album. Oh, that's great. And what What's the timeline on that? When do we see that come out? Um, it depends. Uh, it could come out. It could come out as as early as uh, as fall or or um, the beginning of the year spring it really 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 depends uh, um, I should have it completed uh, by May uh, it's just a question of when it'll come out oh that's great uh, th- Frankie always a pleasure merci beaucoup as we say up here and of course uh, while you're at heavy Montreal if there's anything you need happy to help out drive you around show you to uh, whatever the, our, our, our great uh, cathedrals or whatever you want to see more than happy to do it oh well uh, i'll I'll leave it on that because the phone broke up i didn't hear the answer but frankie merci beaucoup and uh, we'll see you uh in july bonsoir you be well i look forward to seeing you cheers now bye-bye you're listening to rock talk with mitch lafon rock talk and a very big thank you to uh, Frank Benelli. And as you heard, the band will be at Heavy Montreal at the end of July. A great, great festival show. Uh, Alan, you know, you, you should come up to, to Heavy Montreal. Is, is that something you still do? Do you still get out to a lot of shows? Uh, very rarely. Um, it takes a lot to get me off my mountain. And, uh, you know, I, be, I put an awful lot of mileage on my body back in the day. And it's got to be something that really means something to me to get me out of the front door. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But you know what? Uh, I have on the phone also here uh, Nick Farkas from Ivenco. They are the promoter for Heavy Montreal. They book all the shows at the Bell Center, whether it's Metallica, Madonna, Paul McCartney, Rolling Stones, whatever. And so uh, I'm going to just uh, get I'm going to defer here to Nick and we will quickly talk a little bit more about Heavy Montreal and some of the challenges a promoter faces in getting bands here. Because whenever a festival announces, regardless whether it's Wacken or M3 or Heavy Montreal, one of the first things you see on the Internet is you should have booked so and so. Uh, and it's not always that easy. So uh, I will just uh, cut short our, our little in- impromptu. Uh... Let's talk about Heavy Montreal. Here's Nick Farkas. We are speaking with Nick Farkas from promoter Ivenko. They, of course, bring you some of the greatest festivals in the world, including Oceaga, Montreal, 77, and the one that I have an affinity for. It is uh, Heavy Montreal. Uh, good day, Nick. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. So we are, of course, going to talk Heavy Montreal. This year's lineup is exceptionally exciting. We have, of course, Slayer, Godsmack, Anthrax, and, of course, one of my favorite, uh, Quiet Riot, is going to be there. But 
Um, I need you like that one. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's funny because uh, Frankie Benelli, who's the drummer of Quiet Riot, when my daughter was born, he sent out a gift with, you know, clothes and stuff. And so that's, uh, you know, that they've always been very kind to me. But let me ask you some general questions, because some of the folks going to be listening are going to be in the States. They're going to be in Australia. They're going to be all over the place. Talk to me about the challenges first of putting together a festival show, because, you know, when you look at Europe, They've got Wacken and Sweden Rock, and, and you can go on and on and on and on about how many festivals. It seems to be a cultural kind of phenomenon over there. In the States, in Canada, it seems to be more of a, a novelty. So just talk to me about getting the brand going and getting this, because now we're at edition, what, we're at 10, I believe, right? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting an interesting uh, progression for heavy. Um, you know, first year we had, you know, we went off, got off to a huge start when we had, uh, we had maiden Motley crew and that was, you know, the maiden day was huge that year and the Motley crew day wasn't as big. So we kind of started with that and we were looking in, and over the last 10 years, we've really tried to figure out exactly what the Montreal market wanted, trying to figure out, you know, do we go super metal? Do we go darker? Do we go anyways? It's been a, and you get the, the crazy thing about a festival is you get one chance a year to do it right or to do it wrong. And in this day and age with social media, et cetera, you find out in a hurry if you've done it wrong uh, or if you've done it right. So it's really been an interesting progression because, like you said, the, the tradition of you know festivals in, in North America is not what it is in Europe. Um, and we really wanted to build heavy based on the European model being as inclusive as possible, having as many styles as possible, you know, really opening up the you know our arms as wide as possible to welcome as many people in to the festival uh and so it's been i mean honestly with it's been our most challenging festival and i mean for me it's a labor of love because i got into the business booking punk rock and metal so you know i really really have always wanted heavy to work and we've had some some really difficult years and we've had some good years and it's never been consistent and uh this year we really tried to go into the spirit of the first year and have, you know, multi-generational, multi-year, multi-style, multi-everything, and really try to appeal to as broad a base as possible. And, uh, you know, I'm very, personally, I'm very happy with, I think it's our, our strongest lineup. And, you know, I think we really covered so many bases and so many bands that I love and, uh, you know, from every different style possible and every, every walk of, walk of, you know, Walk of Earth, walk of life, walk of life, walk of life, walk of life. But but so let me look at some of the challenges here because you know the fans love to complain. That that is the one thing we know about whether whatever guest I book on the show or whatever guest you book at a festival, fans love to complain. They go, "Well, you didn't book this guy." But let's talk about some of the realities because you are in a competitive market. Um, there are all kinds of things like radius clauses. And then there are, there are other ones where, well, the band's playing this festival, so they're not going to do that festival. So how challenging is it to get bands to the lineup, considering that, you know, a week after Heavy, you've got uh, whacking going on. So you've got a lot of bands that are gearing up with, you know, short European runs so they can sort of culminate at Wacken. Um Talk to me about some of the, the realities of actually getting bands to commit to a festival, and, and that's either Montreal 77 or Oceaga or Heavy Montreal. They don't just go, it's not just pick up the phone and, oh yeah, we're there. It, there is some realities that maybe some fans just don't understand. 
Well, I mean, I think, like you said, you're, you're, you're not just competing on a national level, you're competing on an international level. So if an artist is getting a huge offer in Japan or Asia, I mean, anywhere in Asia or Europe, you know, you're competing with that a global market. And in this day and age, you know, artists can command, you know, a lot of money in different markets. So it's become, especially with a festival like Heavy, where, you know, let's be truthful, there are limited amounts of headliners. And, you know, a lot of the headliners are older artists and are super in demand. So, you know, everybody's going to be going after the Slayers and, uh, you know, the Iron Maidens. Everybody's going to want those those top, 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 top acts. That, and there aren't, you know, enough younger acts to fill that void. So it's incredibly competitive, um, incredibly difficult to lock in, uh, especially the headliners, to lock in headliners year after year. Um, So, you know, we're really, the experience on the acts that are, you know, fortunately 10 years in with Heavy, we have a great reputation in terms of like, you know, the city is amazing, the site is amazing. I think it's one of the nicest festival sites in North America. Um, so we have that going for us. There is a bit of reputation. So it's gotten a bit easier on the sense that at least when people see an offer coming in from us, they know that it's going to, you know, the catering is going to be great. The production is going to be amazing. You know, the experience is going to be awesome. And the crowds, obviously, the Montreal, Quebec crowds are, are you know, second well, to none. Well, so they're legendary. Legendary. So it's like you've got all of those things on your side, which helps you influence a band to, to, you know, not to go do a week of dates before walking and maybe do a week of dates after walking or, you know, whatever it is. So we have a lot of positives going, but at the same time, like I said, in a global market, you're at the mercy of, you know, the Canadian dollar being terrible or whatever else is out there. So it's really, it's very competitive and it's a, it's very challenging. And uh, when you get great acts like we have this year, it's that much more rewarding to see, you know, that people took the leap of faith and wanted to play. Yeah, really. And and of course, you've had uh, Ghost that came and played Place Bell, which is a venue locally here in Montreal. And now you've coming, you got him back coming as headliners was going to be exceptionally uh, special because they don't do a lot of festival dates. But uh, is there a place for a festival to develop new acts? Is there a sort of an obligation for you to say we need to start fostering some of the next the you know, the, the next years? Uh, heroes or is it like no 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 i'm a festival i'm a business i only have to have bands that are going to put people in the seats i mean we've always prided ourselves on all our festivals you know we love supporting the local artists we love supporting canadian artists we love supporting developing artists um you know bands like fever 333 that just played here the other night opening for bring me horizon you know these upper these are the up and coming acts and if we don't if they don't get a chance to play in front of more people then they don't grow and they don't develop as quickly. And, you know, we don't have headliners five years from now. So we're very, 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 very um, focused on making sure that we have, you know, the next generation of talent playing at our festivals all the time. It's super important. Yeah, it really is. Now, uh, the festival site, uh, as you mentioned, it, the, the reputation is built on, on the catering and on the fan response and on the ticket prices being right. But the festival site, for those who haven't been to Montreal, there's something very unique about it, because correct me if I'm wrong, but there was about $76 million or something like that invested in revamping the site. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, the city, you know, the site was built 
the island, it's basically an island in the middle of the St. Lawrence River, two islands in the middle of the St. Lawrence River, um, you know, that ha- the casino is there and the Six Flags Amusement Park and a bunch of other things. And the subway stops right there because it was built for Expo 67, the World's Fair. And they hadn't really done much to the site since, you know, 67. And it was conceived of, like the whole island was conceived of uh, as a gathering place for people. So um, a few years back, they started looking at how they were going to, you know, encourage people to continue to use the island and come back. And uh, they decided to invest in the actual, you know, the main bowl where concerts and gatherings are held. Um, So they, you know, they've invested a lot of money in, you know, the infrastructure. And uh, they they basically gutted the whole thing and, and turned it started over again and rebuilt it. So we're super excited to see what it all ends up looking like. But the beauty, I mean, one of the great things about the site is that not only do we have like the main field where the main stages are, we also have other stages in the woods and people can wander around and you're, like I said, you're in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. So it's really a beautiful space and you have all these different environments to watch different bands and different, you know, different settings. So it's not like just being at one giant, you know, big stage festival where the environment is exactly the same. We really pride ourselves on, on creating a a unique experience where everything is different every time you go. And, uh, you know, everything from heavy mania, we have a wrestling ring and we try to keep it, you know, there's some, you're always trying to keep it. If you're there, you know, if you're going to see a festival for 11 hours, you know, we want to make sure that people have a lot to do. And, uh, you know, it's always been part of the what makes it so special is the site and the fact that there are so many different places and, you know, small shows, small set stages. Last year, we built a new stage, which was literally like an outdoor club. You know, there was like a thousand people, maybe cap, maximum cap. And during the day is like 500 people. So you're literally watching a show with a bunch of your buddies. And then, you know, half an hour later, you're watching in front of with 15,000 of your buddies. So, I think that's what makes it so special. And I think the artists appreciate it. Uh, the fans appreciate the fact that it's not like just a constant, you know, the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I know it really is. Now, of course, I'll remind folks that uh, the festival takes place July 27th and 28th in Montreal. And you go to heavymontreal.com for all information. And uh, we'll finish with this. You know, a lot of my listeners are actually in Chicago, in Los Angeles, Detroit. Give me sort of your best sales pitch. Why does somebody need to motivate themselves to get on a plane or get in a car and come over to Heavy Montreal? What what fan experience can you deliver that maybe other festivals can't deliver? Or, or maybe you just deliver better? I think, you know, I, I've said enough about the site, but I think what we can offer that most other festivals can offer is the fact that we have, like, our biggest festival, Oceaga, on the same site, followed by, you know, and Heavy's followed by an REDM festival. So we're able to, for the price that we charge for the tickets, we're able to provide, you know, the best state-of-the-art stages, sound and lights, you know, all the amenities, the VIP section, everything is, you know, you couldn't do it if you were just doing one metal festival. You couldn't provide everything that we provide for the price that it costs because it's just too prohibitively expensive. The main, you know, one of the huge major, major costs when you're doing a festival is building the site, you know, your fencing, your stages, all of the infrastructure is massively expensive. So once you've built that and then you can use it, you know, 77, our punk rock festival, which is the day before heavy, it's part of the heavy weekend. uh, You know, you couldn't offer 
the bands the opportunity to play on that kind of level of stage, that level of production. Um, you know, everything from the food. You know, Montreal is the food capital of you know Canada, one of the food capitals of North America. It, it's you the know, food capital of North America. I mean, you can't get a better meal than in Montreal. I mean, that's I agree. The truth. I totally agree. So we've always prided ourselves on, you know, bringing those restaurants and those food trucks and getting them out to the island. So the experience is more than just, you know, a traditional festival. We And like I said, we based ourselves a lot on the European model. We The European model without camping because we're right in the middle of the city. So you can stay downtown Montreal, one of the greatest hotels you can possibly find or an Airbnb. And then just get on the subway and you're on the site in 10 minutes and drink as much as you want and have as much fun as you want. Then get back on the subway, go back downtown. So I think it, it's a unique experience and i've been to a ton of festivals in my life and uh you know we're fortunate that we have this site that just is 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 phenomenal and that we have so many festivals out there that we can offer something that i think very few other festivals of our of this genre can offer oh i i fully agree because when you go to sort of what i would call a sort of a one and done festival in the sense that you you know they only have those three days and then whoops the site's gone they, you're right. They can't have that infrastructure, and they can't have that intimacy. And they, and you get there, and I've been to festivals where they've set up the press tent in a barn, literally in a barn, and you just go, <laughs> ooh. And, and then you come to Heavy Montreal, and you go, ah, this is first class. This this is different. This is a whole different level. And and I think fans also, um, they you can't appreciate how easy it is to get to the site. You go to a European site. Sometimes you park three miles away and you're walking in the mud whereas here you hop on the subway and the subway literally drops you off at the gate of the festival more convenient is not possible uh, so of course not possible. Uh, not not possible uh folks i do encourage you to come out to to heavy montreal do follow me all through the years i will be talking about it and interviewing a whole bunch of folks uh, today we've got uh, frankie benelli coming up in a second but uh, let me remind you Godsmack, Evanescence, Slash, Kill Switch, Engage, Ghost, Slayer, Anthrax, etc., etc., etc. HeavyMontreal.com. Don't miss it. And I myself will be there, so please come say hello. Nick, always, always a pleasure, and uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. You know, it keeps, it keeps Montreal on the map, and it keeps uh, folks like me entertained and busy going from festival to festival to festival. Awesome. We appreciate the support always, and uh, everybody come and hang out with us. It'll be fun. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think a lot of the bands also do. They do signings and stuff. You could you, you'll often find one of the bands at the merch tent or something. So there's there's just something for everybody. So you know, come on down. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, sir. All right, man. Talk soon. Great. Thank you. Have a good one. Now back to rock talk with Mitch Lafon. There you go. Very big thank you to uh, Nick Farkas of Evenco to explain sort of the ins and outs of Heavy Montreal and just booking festivals in general. But, uh, Alan, let us get back to the show. Well, that was the show, but let's get back to our next guest, Tim Ripper Owens, who, of course, is probably better known for the time that he spent in uh, Judas Priest. And um, I guess you could say that they made a movie out of him, right? Rockstar? Uh, absolutely they did, and uh, Judas Priest were heavily involved with it initially uh, until they found that they weren't getting control of the script and the content. Um, and I I think you'll find that uh, Ripper himself is uh, a, a little less than thrilled with um, how the story was told and how he was represented, but... Uh, 
you know, it's Hollywood. They're going to try and make it into a story. And when you're dealing with Hollywood, you know, they have their cliched perceptions of rock and roll. So, you know, they wanted to tell the story that they thought people would want to watch. But, um, you know, I'd point out, for example, I think Halford had gone from the band for three years or so before they found Ripper. Yeah. It wasn't an overnight thing like represented in the movie. And, uh, you know, I don't think um, Halford was uh, dispatched to the door as, you know, it's played in the movie. Um, but, you know, it's a mildly entertaining movie, but it's full of those cliches that uh, yeah. people think are rock and roll. Well, even even Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody movie is very, very liberal on the telling of the story it's it's not hard facts it's hard facts according to screenwriter xyz so but but let me ask you this about tim ripper owens because he did those two albums with uh, judas priest and the band seems to have completely disavowed them you go to spotify or amazon or what cannot find them they are completely unavailable for streaming or purchase um if you want a cd and all that forget it uh, they've remastered a whole bunch of stuff and re-released a whole bunch of stuff, but Ripper, forget it. Um, is that the the right move for Judas Priest to sort of, well, I guess, disavow is, is really the best word, to, to just pretend it never happened, just go, oops? Or should they just own up to it and say, okay, fans might want to hear it. Why not? Oh, well... I think you might get an interesting answer out of Rob Halford on that. I think Rob might be quite content with the fact that those things have disappeared. And, you know, quite honestly, it, it, it's definitely a classic case of the voice being critical to the band. And I'll never forget um, the very first time I heard him sing live, uh, which was uh, a pre-production rehearsal before we started the uh, touring with Priest back in 1984, you know, and I'd heard the albums and, you know, knew the albums and I loved one or two of the singles and, but I had no idea how strong and how incredible uh, his pitch and range was live and personal. And I sat there um, next to their manager, just watching the band run through the material the night before uh, the first gig just blown away with with Rob's power. Just amazing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but but up until you saw that rehearsal, and I think you told me this, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I maybe I dream, I dreamt it. But didn't you think that Rob's voice was somehow magically enhanced in the studio? And then when you saw it, you went, "Oh, oh, okay, not this is real, right?" I mean, you you, you well, were you were convinced that there was some magic involved, right? Well, not necessarily magic, but you wondered how many takes and and whether the, the vocals were comped, um, which is a, a practice where you get the singer to sing a part of the song and then you get them to sing it again. You maybe get them to do it, you know, four, maybe five times. Um, after that, it starts to sound a bit tired. And, and you sit down and you take the best parts of each performance and compiled them, hence the word comp, and compiled them together into a seamless performance. And I rather wondered if, you know, that was the case with uh, 
was Rob. But my God, you know, the, the impression he made on me the very first time I heard him sing live was I was stunned. I just did not realize just how on he was, you know, because he hit some notes with some power. And I kind of wondered whether, you know, it took him two or three or four or five attempts to do that in the studio. No, he just opens his mouth and out it comes. Yeah. And what were your impressions when you first met Rob? Because I've, I've had a chance to meet him a couple of times and he's always just been exceptionally nice. Now, I've heard stories that sometimes on tour he might have gotten a little bit whatever. But my experience is that he's exceptionally, exceptionally nice, polite. Uh, I don't want to say demure, but but, you know. Oh, it, no, they, they all the priests were really, really cool and very accommodating to us. And, you know, it was cool to hang out with them once in a blue moon. I mean, we had a, a night together in New York and um, they're, they're good northern guys. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the thing about Rob, I mean, it's, it, it's no secret that he um, enjoys particular company. That I did not know until I was sitting in a, in a hotel bar in the first week of the tour, and he arrived in the company of um, a shirtless, heavily muscled young man, and he had a collar and lead around his neck, and my jaw just hit the floor. That's hilarious. That's that's great. But let's let's get over to Judas Priest's Invisible Man, the one, the only Tim Ripper Owens. We are speaking with singer Tim Ripper Owens, of course, from. Iced Earth, Judas Priest, Dio's Disciples, and just everything. Three Tremors, Spirits of Fire, Tim. An absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Mitch. Well, I guess when we always read off, I guess the good thing is I have no problem getting work. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, well, okay, listen, I was going to ask you about that. So why don't we start with that first? Now, we are here to talk about the Three Tremors, so we'll focus on that. And we are here to talk about Spirits of Fire and all the other stuff that you've done do. But talk to me about all these different projects and all these different things that you've had your name attached to. I mean, you look at Charred Walls of the Dam, you look at Judas Priest, uh, Iced Earth, Beyond Fear, Ingve Malmsteen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At some point, why not just say, hey, I am Tim Ripper Owens, and I'm going to brand it as Tim Ripper Owens, and if you want to come play on my album whether it's Three Tremors or Spirits of Fire, it's going to be a Tim Ripper Owens album. And talk to me about all this different work and, and, and the branding and, and the name and ah, just, you know, talk to me about all that stuff. You know, I have the branding. And the thing is, it's funny because this is the, the la- this year, probably last year, the first two years in the past 10 years that I haven't toured the world nonstop under Tim Ripper Owens. I mean, uh, solo is the way that I usually tour. I, I, uh, you know, I've got the Beyond Fear record out, the solo record out. But what's great is I, I also have these other records out, including my Judas Priest time. So when I tour solo, I play my material. I serve material, Judas Priest material. I mean, Judas Priest doesn't play it. So fortunately, I'll play Cathedral Spires and Burning Hell and Bloodstain. And, but uh, I tour the world solo. Uh, I have a great band in different areas that I, w- I will use. I have a great band in Brazil, uh, Argentina. I have a, an, an amazing band in, in Ireland that does Europe with me. So it's fortunate that I get to tour under my name, and that's how I do it. But 
the great thing is I get asked opportunities. I get offered these, you know, singing on, listen, I sing on, on bands and musicians records all the time that a lot of people never even get. I mean, if you go to my Wikipedia page, you'll see a list of stuff because I just get a message saying, would you sing on this? And then I listen to it and go, yeah, this would be, this would be fun, you know, all the way from like metal operas to, to blues songs to whatever, because my voice can adapt to so many styles. So I'm fortunate I get asked these things. Nowadays, it's by bands wanting to do records. Uh, you know, right now, which they weren't supposed to all three come out at the same time. But like you said, we have three trimmers. Uh, we have uh, Spirits of Fire and we have A New Revenge, which isn't even being talked about yet. But that's going to be coming out. And that's Kerry Kelly and James Kotek. That was recorded a few years ago. Each record's not been recorded at the same time, even three trimmers and Spirits of Fire. They haven't they weren't recorded at the same time, you know, probably a year apart. It's just unfortunate that they're all coming out at the same time. But I get asked to do these things, you know, uh, a band Killing Machine, which I was working on last year. Uh, then we kind of put it on 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 the side. And, you know, now they're talking to me again about doing the vocals and writing the material for that. I'm just lucky that I get offered to do these things. It's always different types of music. Uh, it's, you know, it's never the same thing. All three records that are coming out now are different. And uh, I try to make everybody happy with different things. You know, it's funny, Mitch, is I have people say, why don't you do one band? I'm not sure why they would complain if they're a fan of mine, that I'm having material come out two, three times a year because they get to hear different stuff. As a fan of a musician, I would love to hear Rob Halford doing, you know, different stuff again, you know, putting different things out. Um, but also, if I was in one band, they would never see me because I'd be working a regular job. <laughs> right, know, which is true. You, so, well, so you let's can't say- afford... Well, Britt, let, let me let me touch upon that because you did mention that you have a Brazil band and a this band and a that band. Uh, I understand that because of you know a touring cost to get four guys, for example, from uh, the UK over to here, like Diamond Head, for example, when they come here and they fly the band, they're twenty thousand dollars in the hole before they even play a show. So I get that why it's easier to fly just one guy, but. Talk to me, just explain it to the fans a bit about the economics of why you have to have a Brazil band and an Irish band and a this band, because it it really is a challenge to get a artist from point A to point B in this market. Well, yeah, and, for, and it's my, listen, this is my job. I don't do anything else. I'm a musician. I sing, I sing in the studio, I tour. Uh, this This year, I'm kind of doing you know, the three trimmers and I'm doing the hologram tour. So I'm kind of in writing material and I'm not really touring solo. I'm kind of slowed down this year, but you have to, if it's your job, I'm not 19 years old without payments, you know, bills. Uh, I don't, you know, Sean has a great job and he can do music and not, and not worry about, coming home and breaking even. Some musicians don't have bills. Some musicians could come home and pay for a $300 apartment and, you know, live on a shoestring budget. I can't. First of all, I like to spend money. Second of all, I got child support, bills, you know, cars, you know, I live and I'm 51 years old. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a 51 year old guy that doesn't, that doesn't want to have any money. So you have to, you have to, you can't do it. I mean, 
that's the issue about for me keeping that. I, I can't afford to go out and make no money. Okay. Uh, I can afford now to find a great band. I've got, um, I mean, my bands are, are amazing now. It's unbelievable what I use, you know, with the free trimmers guys there, that's the cage band. So they're amazing. But there's, there's none of my bands beyond fear can't go on the road and make, you know, hundred bucks a week or something, or 50 bucks a show or a hundred bucks a show. You know, no one, they're not going to go out and make a hundred dollars a show. They got families as well. So, uh, because at the end of the day, that's, that's kind of what pays could be. And I mean, I'm just using an example. I don't know what pays would be. I have a fee that I charge when I do special appearances and I have a fee that I charge for records. Uh, and it's, it's not all the same. It's all different. You know, if I went out with my solo band, if I went out with Beyond Fear, it would be totally different. You know, I would probably come home and hopefully, you know, make a little bit of money. I understand that, but I like to play my songs. I like to sing the songs I've written, sing the songs that I've been on record with. And I get to do it this way by traveling the world uh, and doing it. You know, I mean, it's not a bad gig to, to travel the world and, and sing. Um, so I, I, I know I just cut you off, but let me ask you about that, because you did say also that a lot of bands and a lot of people will send you an email and say, how about singing on this and sing on that? Because you have a very particular voice. It is, you know, there's not a lot of singers that can do what you do. So you have this this gift. We'll call it a gift. As you get older and as we read about other singers and having their vocal issues, and is that something that starts playing in your mind that you, you might lose the gift or, or do you work on it specifically? Like, how do you sort of, how do you keep the voice in shape? Because everything I've heard up to now is spectacular, but do you worry? Do you have a special regiment that keeps you at this level? Well, I, I you know, Absolutely, I worry, and I, I can tell you right now for the past year, whatever my voice is, is probably two years is definitely not what it was five years ago. But the weirdest thing about singers is voices can go up and down. You can get something in there and lose it a little bit, and it comes back. Uh, you know, I used to be able to sing all day, all night, do anything I want, uh, but now it's not like that. I got to make sure I'm drinking water and, and get my sleep and not talk during the day and. But yeah, I mean, I definitely worry about that. I try to always think about it uh, because my main goal is to always sing as, as good as I can. I was just telling somebody on Facebook who was, you know, slagging me and telling me how bad it was. You know, I so said the, the big thing, because I'll talk to people, I'm, I, I don't care. The big thing about me is I've always prided myself on singing songs live like they were recorded, you know, going on stage and singing live like they were recorded and then making them better or singing higher notes or singing longer notes, but not ducking notes, not changing it because I can't sing it. So I've been fortunate in my career to be able to go on stage and sing and do that, you know, and that's what I want to continue to do, but it's definitely harder now. I mean, you know, it's crazy how it's changed. And then you start thinking, how can I, what am I doing different? And, you know, get the humidifiers out and, get a new furnace in my house. I mean, listen, these are things that I've done in the past year. Bought a new furnace, you know, just I've, I've done everything to always go, uh, how am I going to fix this problem? But, you know, you just go through it, uh, you know, and you, and you, um, you hear a lot of singers who will struggle at times in your career. And next thing you know, they're singing better than they ever had. And that's just what happens. 
KK Downing said to me once, you know, singing, it's not like being a guitar player, you know, guitar players can shut their fingers in a car door, you know, and then you go to the gig and go, oh crap, I can't play. I shut my fingers. Well, singers just wake up one day and have a something wrong with their voice. And that's, you know, you're an alcoholic drug user who's out all night long, that, that's your fault. But I mean, people who just take care of themselves can wake up and have an issue. And I'm, you know, I just said in an interview about Rob's a great example of someone who right now is singing fantastic. Rob Hoffman right now is singing fantastic, in my opinion. And it shows you how you can go on and keep singing great. You know, there's so many singers like that. Uh, Ronnie Dio sang a different style and sang great uh, up months. He was singing like months before he passed away. Singing great. So I watched my my heroes sing and i just think yeah you know what i you know that i want to do that i'm gonna i want to keep singing like that yeah so all right let me let me backtrack here and get to three tremors because that's why we're on the phone so i i'll i have the do questions and the 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 priest questions all ready to go but um we've got ripper tyrant the hell destroyer or as we know them tim harry and sean on the three tremors is this a sort of one-and-done project and, and with a little bit of touring, or is this something that you would hope to develop over the next few years and have, you know, three, four tours and three, four albums? Where are we with the three tremors and sort of the, the, the slope or the arc? Where is it, you know? Well, I think it's definitely the plan is to, to continue it. I mean, this is what sold me on this originally was Sean saying, listen, I have this idea of, doing a record with three singers at that time. You didn't call it three tremors and doing us because I've done a lot of things, uh, metal singers tour in, in South America with me and blaze Bailey and Mike Biscara and Udo Dirk Schneider. We did a tour together and uh, Jeff Tate and blaze and, and I did a tour in the States together. So it's been done. But what, what Sean said is, Hey, let's do, I, I want to make a record. It wasn't, let's go play our old catalog songs and go play, you know, a couple classic songs. Let's. He he was like, let's go make a record, and let's let's push that. And it it sold me on that. And I, you know, we had a blast. And the greatest part of this record is we didn't sing parts on this record. We all sang the whole record. Like I I did vocals on the whole record as well. So you know, there could be uh, my own version of this record that comes out, which is going to be different than Sean's version. So you know, that's what's great about doing this is. I didn't go in and sing one line here, one line there. I mean, it was all done. And and it is the idea is to continue it. You know, we have a lot of touring opportunities already. And, you know, I there's not no question in my mind there'll be another record. I mean, this is what we want to do. It's a it's a fun thing and it's a, it's a metal record too, man. It is a straightforward power metal, high notes, classic, it's great stuff. Yeah, it really is. And uh Okay, so we also have Spirits of Fire, which now uh, Three Tremors came out in January. Spirits of Fire are coming is coming out at the end of February. Uh, talk to me about that one. I mean, you, you've got Chris Caffrey on there and um, uh, Steve and Di Giorgio, right? Steve Di Giorgio. Di Giorgio, yeah. I don't know why I can't say that. And Mark Zonder. Um, yep. Talk to me about that one. How is that different from Three Tremors and other things you're doing? How did this project uh, get together? And of course, Chris, man, that dude has it. He he is a talent. I mean, everybody yeah. he everybody there is a talent, but Chris particularly. Holy 
Wow. He's a great guy. You know, we've been friends for a long time and, you know, I love his playing and, you know, that one actually started before, uh, three trimmers. So that, you know, that's why I said, people are going to be like, dude, I can't hear you. You're super busy. Why would you do all this stick with one? Well, we, it was recorded at different times and frontiers and Chris kind of got a hold of me and said, man, we should do, you guys should do something. And, uh, Roy Z produced it. And, and, you know, some of the songs on there, uh, I wrote along with Roy, Roy sent me music and I, and I wrote stuff to it. So he, I think he's playing on the record as well. Um, some rhythms, I'm not exactly sure, but I would imagine he is. And so it was, it, you know, and it's more of a, of a Judas priest sabotage, probably more of the, of, a, you know, a style that people are used to me doing throughout my career with winter's bane and, beyond fear and all this stuff so this is kind of lends itself more to that um but it's yeah it's great i mean the first one light speed marching is one of my favorites that we released and we released the video for that so if anybody wants to check that out it's on YouTube. i did i, I did you know, check it, it out it, it is a great track i mean it is in your face to, to be cliche it is slamming it is just a great fucking track it's one of my favorites you know and uh you know so it's it's nice to to do something that somebody gets the three trimmers and and it might be what they want and and some fans might not want it I, i'm going to give them an opportunity to get three different records that, it's, that are going to be coming out you're gonna hopefully like one of them i can't lose <laughs> the three of them maybe right. i will there's probably still someone that's not gonna like it. all right it's like it's like baseball if you have a a, a three 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 batting average uh, you know you're, you're doing good you're you're considered an all-star yeah. uh Okay, so Absolutely. so let, let me talk about these other situations, the priest and the Dio. So Dio Disciples goes out, does the hologram tour. We'll talk about that. But there is this other band out there called Last in Line. And as a fan, I love the idea of Dio Disciples. I love the idea of the hologram because I'm, I'm a very strong believer in choice. If you don't want to see it, don't pay for it. And if you want to see it, go enjoy it. Why should, you know... But there seems to be this bad blood between the two bands, and it, it doesn't make sense to me. Why can we not have two bands celebrating the legacy of a great man and just everybody get along? So so why are we hearing things about this band is not the real one? Explain that to me. Well, that, that's one of the stupidest things. I mean, you know, because you played with them in 1985 doesn't mean that that's all we need to hear from. I mean, you know... Uh, you know, people just say that, and it's it is what it is. I have I have no issues with Last in Line. I mean, I've never met Vivian Campbell. I'd love to meet meet him. You know, I know him and, and Ronnie had their differences, and that's what happens. Music's a family. Bands are a family. Uh, not all families get along, and things happen. Um, but I, I, you know, uh, Vinny, I'm friends with, and and all you know, the guys, the actually, I'm friends with all the guys in Last in Line, so I don't have anything anything bad to say and you know to say well we were the ones who were his band uh that's that is awesome and it's great and i'm really proud of you for that um but so was you know craig and his friend and simon was with him forever and lived with him they were roommates and and great friends and you know so it <laughs> got Warren was with him forever and with him in heaven and hell so it's it is what it is everybody has a right to do it i i, I the agree point is, the whole point is we're celebrating ronnie dio i mean we're celebrating his music i'll tell you right now it's the least paying gig that i do 
because there is expenses. This is the band thing. There's nothing that comes at the end of it, hardly. And the reason is, is we pay to get out there and celebrate his music. You know, uh, I'll get paid more for one solo show than I would for a week of touring in a band like that. That's just because it goes. You pay to go out and do it. That's what it, that's what it's about. And it's one of the most enjoyable things I do. I can't do it all the time because of that. And that's why people don't see me with, with the other disciples as much. But it's one of my favorite things to do. All the guys in the band are like my brothers. I love them. Wendy Dio is the most amazing woman I've ever met. Most gracious woman I've ever met. You ever need anything, she's there for you. So it's it's uh, it's it's an amazing thing. So to to know that last in line to to myself that last in line is doing it, I, I I love it. I think it's great. I'd love to go watch them. I love the new video they just released. I've liked it on on social media. I've told people it's great. So I mean, I could be one of the assholes or jerks or whatever that whatever what's his name said. In his last interview. Well, there was an interview where one of the guys said, uh, I guess it was a Freeman who said that people in Dio oh, yeah. Disciple were dicks. And it's just like, I but, read that and, and, and I'm like, okay, but, you know, why, why, as, I, why as a fan do I need to hear that? Uh, you're both celebrating, Ronnie. You know, anyway. You know, you know, Mitch, I don't know how it was talked about, how it was asked, or what was being said. Exactly. Listen. I, I I think I responded by someone saying, I, you know, it doesn't, I don't care. I said, hell, I am a dick. So I don't really, you know, you can call me one, but I don't know, you know, that's the whole thing. And that's why I have nothing against them. And I, I, I do interviews and I know what comes out after doing interviews. Uh, and it's always, things can be twisted. Things can be said. Uh, yep. Do you, you know, they could have said, do they act? Are they act? Do you think sometimes some of them act like dicks? Yeah, sometimes they are dicks. Well, of course, we do. We all act like dicks. You, you know, we all have we a, all a bad day. But and you know what? And that's why. <laughs> that's why I'm gonna. I'm just gonna uh, pat myself on the back here. But that's why I do the show this way, where I put it out unedited, so you hear the artist as is so that if a website and we all know which websites grab stuff and they start pulling quotes out, you can go to the source and listen to it and go, Hey, wait a minute. That wasn't the spirit of what he said. Well, yeah. And, and but people don't, people don't, Mitch. people don't go I know. look at the, they don't go listen to it. They look at the headline and go, man, what is, I know, I know, I know. That. It's like, why don't you, you listen to the actual interview you know, I tell you, I just read a, a, a positive headline and it might be the first positive headline. It said, I think it said Ripper says Rob sings better now than he has for in years. I'm like, oh, my God, that's like almost positive. I think I, I, think well, I just read something. So so let's get yeah. back to the positive. Talk to me about the, the whole hologram thing that that's got to be a challenge for an artist because. You know, when you're on stage, sometimes the adrenaline, well, not sometimes, the adrenaline takes over and you'll be running up to the, the, the drum riser and this and that. And now with a hologram, you've got to be very careful about where you position yourself because you don't want to be walking through the hall. And of course, there's the, they, they have to run tracks for his voice. We have no choice. Uh, talk to me about the, the, the challenges of putting on that show and making it a fan experience. Well, you know, and I, I tell you, one reason I'm doing it is because it is a fan experience for me. And the other, first I said no to the whole thing. And then I was like, you know, this is, nobody's done this. And when we did that first tour in Europe, nobody's been out there touring like this. You know, I was a friend of Ronnie. I was a major fan. And 
I, as a fan of him, I, I would like, you know, I'd like to see it. I'd love to see one of David Bowie. You know, I'd love to see these. But I'll tell you what, I would sit backstage when, and the band has to play to a click of Ronnie's live version, right? So it's the band's playing live to him. So you hope, hope they don't mess up. He's, he's, um, it's, I don't know what version it is, but it's a, it's a really live version. And I'm backstage when I'm not, when, when he's doing it. And it's, it, it gets me every time because I hear his voice. I hear him talking. I'm not even looking at the hologram. I'm just hearing his voice and hear him talking. And then he starts singing and the band's playing. And it gets me every time. I'm like, man, this is just, this is just something, man. It just makes me, I can close my eyes and go, you know. So people have, it's not difficult for me. I'm up there for a, a little bit with the hologram, but, you know, I, I, uh, I think it's a, a really neat thing. I mean, we're almost the trial band at the time doing it. We had to go back and change a few things, try to make it better. Uh, we'll have an American tour coming up. And, you know. And, listen, and Canadian tour, that, right? And Canadian. We can't forget. Yeah. Can't, can't forget yeah. us up north. Yeah. We suffer yeah, through the cold. Well, I, we need a hot band you know to come I in. Know, I don't really know who is in, in where it's going yet. So, and I'm certain that's going to be all in the same the same run. But it's um, it's a major production, and it's something that you know, like I said, people might not like it, people don't like it, but I think they look at it in the re- wrong reason. I think they look at it as this is some kind of a cash cow everybody's grabbing. Where I don't think they've realized that Wendy Dio spent so much money to try to go out and celebrate Ronnie. She she wants to celebrate Ronnie. She wants to make the fans happy. I think it hurts her when the fans aren't happy. She's trying to make the fans happy like Ronnie did. Some people might think this is wrong, but that's all she's doing. Well, I don't think she's it's wrong. Started. And I, I got it. I'm just going to stop you for that on the cash cow thing. I mean, give me a give me a break. There is not a single person that would show up their their entire year at work and not have a paycheck at the end of it. We all show up to work for a paycheck. It's all about making money to pay the rent. We're all you know, grabbing cash. So all these things of like, oh, it's a cash. Well, yeah, of course. That's the whole point. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, it's, it's, but it's I, think, I think they think that's what it's just the entirety that it's done for. And to me, uh, you know, here's someone who's raised millions of dollars for the, for cancer to stand up and shout cancer foundation. And I think that's all it gets me sometimes. I wish people could be a little more open-minded. Yes. I mean, they have no problem loving the new queen movie. You know what I mean? It's like, wait a minute, this is an actor playing somebody that's that just somebody's making money from. Okay, so what's the difference? I mean, this there, is it. There's no difference, is, you know, this, and and, yeah. and and there's no shame. I mean, I'm telling you that everybody who's listening, who's gone to work today, didn't go do it for a volunteer basis. They showed up because there was going to be a paycheck at the end of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. That that's just the way it is. And but that that aside, my rant aside, I think it's a perfectly fine concept. Um, fans have choices. If you don't want to pay for a ticket, don't go. Yeah. But but the ones like me who want to see it, because I, I actually am curious to see. I'm curious to see the technical aspect. Is how do you pull this off uh, and make it good? And I'm curious to go see that. So yeah, I would be there in a minute. In in a minute. Um, just before we run out of time here, because we're we're getting close to to half an hour. Uh, the pre stuff. You 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 put out uh, demolition and jugulator. Uh, the albums don't sell as well as Priest in the past, but of course, 
you know, there was different market things that, I mean, Def Leppard wasn't selling as well as Def Leppard was selling, uh, you know, at that time of the, you know, um, you have said on record that the band has erased the history. Is it really the band erasing the history or is it sort of more like Kiss where they're really just focusing on the branding and, and they're focusing on Rob is the singer and this is what the lineup is. And is it, is it erasing or is it just branding? Well, I, you know what? The thing is, every time I end up saying that's because, you know, I'll get two, three, four, five messages or texts or tweets or whatever in a row saying, I can't find this. They don't play that, you know, and I think I always go, oh, man, I'm not even there. I'm not even. I think even last time I said something, they just totally erased me off the website. And that's just, listen, you're, you are right. I mean, you do live for today. Um and, and I get it. I mean, you don't live for today because they wouldn't be playing Breaking the Law, would they? But I mean, uh, the majority of the set wouldn't be the stuff in the past. I get it. And my issue is I would like to I would like to, to, to buy the records. I'd like to buy some to even sell when I'm touring solo, but you can't. True. They're kind of gone. And I think that's only the thing I talk about. But I you know what? I understand it. I'm not asking the to have my face on a backdrop. And I don't think any fan is either. They just kind of want to have a little glimpse of it, you know, maybe a little mention of it. I mean, you know, when there's a 50 year kind of reunion or whatever, how many years, I don't know what's going on, but when you have these, these things come up, you, you would like to hear some previous band members mentioned in a breath along that. That being said though, I'm friends with all of them. I love all the guys, Rob included. We're all friends. And I only say that when, when the fans come at me all the time and bombard me with it. But I don't, you know, you, you did hit it right. And they do, they, you know, no band goes back and plays a ton of the stuff, but you know, it would be nice to hear every now and then one burning hell live, you know, I mean, that would be kind of cool. Cause listen, it was a pretty big song. Of course we weren't as big as when Rob was in a band because it was 1997, eight, nine, when metal was, no bands could play anywhere. You know, Rob was playing Bob's big band, just like everybody else, like we were. That's how it was at that era. Yeah, you're right. And I, but, and I have to but, say that that lineup with you, I saw it at the Hampton Beach Casino Ballroom in New Hampshire. That was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. It was just so in your face to have Priest uh, right there. And vocally... You hit it, man. It, it was it was great stuff. I had a good time. I had a good time. And, you know, Mitch, Judas Priest needed Rob. I understand that. I'm never one to, to not argue that fact. You know, Rob's my my idol and, and a friend and my friend. And, and I don't ever argue that fact. I just sometimes, you know, want to see a little bit out there. And that's, again, if I didn't hear fans say it to me, I, I know, I'll tell you this much. I play the songs live. You want to see the songs live? You want to see Cathedral Spires, like I said, or Blood Santa Bernal, or One on One, or Hell is Home? Just come to my show. There, that's there's there's all you do is Priest fans. You want to hear the stuff? I played on my show, Long as Scream Machine, and all my songs. You can come to my concert because I do I do uh, play them. Yeah, as you should, and and you're right. You know, I'm just looking here. Um, Demolition, for example, is coming up almost on 20 years. You know, a little 20 year 20th anniversary. Like 2021, it'll be 20 years. A little nod wouldn't wouldn't hurt, I guess. And and you, you do have a point. There is one thing about you know uh, uh, putting faces in 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 the print and saying this is the band and and talking about the classic era and all. 
but you're right. It does make no sense that you can't, as a fan, go to Spotify, for example, and check out Jekyll and Hyde or Devil Digger, and that that yeah. that yeah. to me is a bit strange that we can't do that. And and those two live albums, the uh, the Meltdown and the Live in London. I mean, live in London in particular, uh, it, it is fantastic. Yeah, it's good stuff. Not great time. I love my time. And as a matter of fact, three trimmers. When you come see us on tour, we play Burning Hell on tour, so we throw that one in there. But yeah, I mean, it's great. And I don't ever mean to, you know, I, whenever I talk about priests, people might think I get mad or disrespectful. Whatever. Listen, I I just get the fans messaging me. It gets my crawl going there a little bit. Then I then I post something about that. Probably shouldn't have. But that's just that's a normal musician's thing because you want to kind of you want to tell fans, yeah, just go, you can go get my record, you know. Or like I said, I would like to, if they were out there, I could maybe buy them at cost and sell them at my concerts, you know. That would be kind of cool, you know, because I have my whole catalog. Have you then thought perhaps of re-recording them or doing a, a combination of both, like do a live show where you do, you know, six songs from one and six songs from the other? And then make that available because that that would sort of be a way to 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 you know tip your hat to the material and and let the fans say okay listen the band doesn't want to put it out I get it but here are whatever the twelve best tracks or the twelve that I played in concert on this day is that something that might interest you at some point to to, to somehow just make well, them your own I did release that I did say that that was another big big whirlwind of news that swept the metal community that uh. I said, yeah, I'm going to re-record them. This was after the last time I said, they've ignored me. I said, I'm going to go re-record Demolition and Jugular. So I either got people saying don't or, or do it. And I don't think they realized I would only do it because you can't buy it. You can't get Jugular unless you find a used copy or whatever. And that was the only reason why. But I probably would. Uh, first of all, i got to have time to do it. I do play them live. So uh, I'd probably record it in, in, uh, in the UK with with uh, my band Sandstone is there from from Ireland, and I'd probably do it with those guys because they already know almost the whole both records. Um, but it, you know, that was the only reason why I would do it. So it's on, it, you know those songs can be bought again. You know, I mean, I, my fans, I have different fans that you know. Remember, a lot of people lose. I don't have those hard copies anymore. I just, I, I would just go to I buy my stuff on iTunes. I go buy. I'm I'm not a member of the the waving. I just go buy. I buy it, you know, every time I want to get a record, I, I'm traveling. I just go, oh, let me let me get that file so I can listen to it. Um, that's what I want. I want it to be out there so people can actually get it and listen to it. Yeah, I agree. And of course, uh, once I, don't you... <laughs> Mitch, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't right. know if it's going to happen. I, I said that and people was all like, oh, listen, I got three records coming out now. I'm recording a record right now. Actually, two records right now, to be honest. I'm in my studio sitting right now. and I'm in the middle of recording two different records. And. Uh, one of them's like a blue, like a rock and roll record, like an ACDC kind of rock. I, I love to do this stuff. So, and then I'm going to be working on a brand new solo record. Uh, so, I, you know, the the last thing that I want to do is that, but I want to have it out there someday. And, uh, you know, but, you know, I again, I even said that by just being pissed off by fans saying, you know, uh, I can't get it. And I'm like, you know, and I'll do it myself, damn it. Well, you, know, you should. I, I, and of yeah. course, the minute you do it and the minute it comes out, they'll all scream cash grab. And, uh, you know, you, 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 you can never please them. You can never. Fans are difficult. Yeah. But I, I guess that's the great thing about being a fan because it comes from a place of passion. Right. So, 
Yeah, I think I had, you know, I think I just drank a monster energy and I was all amped, ready to go on stage when I got it. I was like, oh, you bastards, I'll do it. I'll do it myself. And then I, next day I'm like, oh, why did I say that? <laughs> yeah, good good old monster. They, they, they treat you well and they treated you well. And of course, uh, well, the, the the charred walls of the dam stuff with Richard Christie is that something that will, will will come up again, or is that sort of listen? You've got three three four albums this year. It, that's on the back burner for now. Well, well, I mean, I don't know. It's up to Richard. It's his it's his baby. Uh, the last record was one of my favorites. Man, oh man, I just love that record. Uh, so I've done three records with him so far. Uh, that's what's even funny. People go, "What do you do? Well, do you ever do your own stuff?" I'm like, "Jesus, man, I got solo record Beyond Fear." I've got three uh, charred walls. I just put the tourniquet record out last year, this past year. I got so many records that I've, that I've sang on. And, but I, I think, I, I don't think there's any doubt we'll put another one out because people love the charred wall stuff. And I hear it all over the world when I travel. It's like, man, I love the charred walls and I sign them all over the place. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's great stuff. But Tim, an absolute pleasure. It's, after all these years, we finally got one done and uh, hopefully we'll get another one done since you have so many albums coming out this year, there's plenty more to catch up on. And, uh, you know, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. I'll talk to you again next week for my next record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sir. Have All a good right. one. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Crank it up. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. A very, very big thank you to Tim Ripper Owens. And uh, folks, we will keep this uh, extravagance uh, going. It is. I think it's probably going to be the longest episode we have ever done, but uh, when you've got Frankie Benelli and you've got Ripper Owens and you've got Ron Keel, you just got to go for it. And uh, I guess, Sir Niven, unless I'm mistaken, but I believe that Ron Keel, uh, I I don't think he was discovered by Gene Simmons, but he was signed to Simmons Records and... That has got to be a great thing, right? Well, if the record sold and he got well supported, it might have been a great thing. Um, you know, Ron was, uh, he had a band called Keel and he had a band called Steeler, if I remember correctly. That is right. And he was he was very much um, uh, a part of that early 80s Los Angeles scene. And, uh, you know, the White Ones did, did shows with him one, once in a while, um, you know, the, the guy had a good energy and, uh, you know, was putting his heart into it. So, you know, Gene signed him. Yeah, Gene signed him. And uh, just real quick, uh, Gene and a friend of mine named Mitch Weissman, who played uh, Paul McCartney in Beatlemania, wrote a, a song together called Easier Said Than Done that appears on their the Right to Rock album. And listen, this episode has been so, so long. We will keep this talk up very, very short. So let's here, get to Ron. Yeah, let's just get to Ron. So here is uh, Ron Keel. He is going to give us The Right to Rock. Uh, well, here, Ron Keel. We are speaking with the Ron Keel band's Ron Keel. And of course, the new album coming out on EMP Outlaw is Fight Like a Band. And there is, of course, Keel Fest 2019. But before we get all to that, 
Let us say hello to Ron. Good day, sir. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Mitch. I'm on Rock Talk with Mitch LaFont, so it's going to be a great day. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to Rock and Rock to talk with you anytime, my friend. Yes, absolutely. And listen, let, let's be uh, upfront here. And and I just love having you on. I think you, you you do great stuff. You're a great guest. You speak well. And it's a great interview. But at the same time, I have an incredible amount of respect because, as you know, when my wife's father passed away in 2013 of cancer, prostate cancer, I asked people to donate a song for a KISS tribute album that raised over $35,000 for a, a local Montreal hospice. And I sent out a whole bunch of feelers and I got a few no's, you know, fair enough. But you were right there and you said yes. And you came up and you did rock and roll hell. And if I'm not mistaken, we had the guys from Tesla and Cinderella on it as well. The track came out great. And so I am forever grateful that you stepped up in my time in need, and um, I just want to thank you again, because every time we talk, I'm going to thank you, and I'm going to do that till the day we can no longer talk. So so thank you well, for Mitch, that. Well, Mitch, I appreciated the opportunity, first of all, to do something for you, something for such a great cause, and to sing one of my all-time KISS favorites with such an all-star uh, lineup in that session. Man, it was a dream come true for me, and I'm glad that I could do it for you, and uh, thank you for letting me. Uh, enjoy that opportunity. It's one of the highlights of my recording career because great song, means a lot to me, and uh, really proud of the vocal. And every time I see Troy Lakata from Tesla, he remarks about that as well. I think all the guys on the session enjoyed being a part of it. I know I did. It just turned out so great. So let's talk about greatness here. Uh, There is Metal Cowboy, Wild and Forever, that came out not too long ago that was re-released or it's going to be re-released. There is, of course, um, Fight Like a Band that comes out on March 1st. That is the new one. So let's let's talk about that one. It's on EMP Outlaw. Is that suggestive that it is a outlaw country album? There are parts of it that could be classified in that manner, Mitch. Uh, and the new lyric video for Road Ready, which is... Uh, really gotten a lot of attention with the uh, the video release for the lyric video. You could tell that's a very Keel-esque type of track. A lot of the fans, listeners, friends, and people in the industry have remarked to me how much it reminds them of Keel. And there are a lot of lyrical references in the song as well to previous songs in my career and uh, the right to rock. And there's, there's references to Steeler and Keel and some of my other projects, including Iron Horse. So that song is very, very Keel-esque, like I said, but there is some uh, there's some cowboy on the record. There's some metal on the record. Um, it is, you know, I just wrote the best songs I could without trying to write a particular style. And we treated every song as if it had its own identity. And uh, it is going to take you through a ride. I grew up in a house where my father played country music. My sister played rock and roll, Stones and Beatles. So I grew up with uh, Cash and Merle Haggard and the Beatles and the Stones. I was playing the blues jazz, classical music in school, a very diverse upbringing. And I think that has been reflected in my music. Once the fences were down and the chains were off and I was free to do whatever the hell I wanted to do, I was able to explore those different territories. Now, like I said, there's going to be some heavy metal on this record and there's also going to be some different styles, but very, very reminiscent of the Metal Cowboy album. And I can't wait for everybody to hear it. It's the most personal musical statement that I've ever made after the experiences that I went through the last couple of years with, um, you know, the, the 
Badlands House Band and Badlands Pond and then my wife going through cancer the last couple of years. There's a lot of personal reflection, both good and bad, in these lyrics. And uh, I'm very, very proud of the record. And it was a team effort for a change. I actually opened up and let the guys in the band really contribute because it is a band project, hence the title, Fight Like a Band. Uh, these guys have been my support group and had my back, and uh, they stuck with me through the tough times. And the, I think that shows in the music and the, the tightness of the record, the production, the songs. And uh, the first single is it, it's a Van Halen type of uh, tongue-in-cheek song called Girls Like Me. And that video is going to come out here in just a few weeks. Uh, and th so there's a whole lot of different stuff on this album. You can check it out at ronkeel.com and get a few sound bites and uh, get an idea of what we're dealing with. So how did you get hooked up with Dave Ellison of Megadeth? Did they come to you, them and Tom Hazard, and say, okay, listen, we've loved what you did back in the day and we'd love to have you here? Or did you sort of reach out to them and say, hey, listen, I've got these songs. Would you guys be interested in putting it out? How, how did the, 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 these two sort of entities get together? Well, I've known Dave for a while. He's uh, an Arizona guy now, and I grew up in Arizona, so there is some common ground and uh, some shared roots there in, in Arizona. And we had run into each other in business and music circles through the years and, and always had a, a smile and a handshake. But really, that relationship uh, went to the next level when Dave brought his band Dollskin, which he released and produced, and he brought them to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and we did a show together. It was Dollskin and my band, and then Dave Ellison joining my band for... Uh, a set, and we basically worked up a set of Megadeth tunes and Dave's favorite covers. So during the course of working together for a couple of days, rehearsing and building that show, I think we uh, really became friends. And when I was in, uh, doing my daily radio show, I started to get a few of his releases, especially that Mark Slaughter Halfway There release, which I thought was an excellent album. And it seemed like they were working the record very well and, and doing all the right things. And they've had some Serious chart success with both uh, Slaughter and Co-op and several of their other acts have done really well. I developed a respect and an admiration for David for his business sense, not just his passion for music and his character, but his also his way of doing business. So when it came time to make a new album and uh, search for an opportunity to get it in the hands of the people, I looked no further than David Ellison. He was the first and only phone call that I made, and I told him that I had a, a record uh, in my heart, in my soul, and, and that I wanted him to uh, consider releasing it, and he hooked me up with Tom Hazard. Uh, Tom and I are cut from the same cloth, and when we get together on the phone, there's a lot of mayhem, man, uh, but uh, they, they accepted me for who I am now. As the Metal Cowboy, they did not want to do a rehash of the 80s. They didn't want another Keel record. When we signed the deal, David sent me down across from the table with a contract between us and said, Ron, I want you to sing your life. Just be you, be who you are, and do what you want to do, and gave me the liberty to express myself on this new record however I wanted to. And it just came out, you know, it's not, it's not a country record. It's not a southern rock record. It's not a metal record, but there are elements of all three on Fight Like a Band. So talk to me about that, because, you know, through your career, you've had to reinvent yourself. You know, you, you were Keel, you were 
you know, and I'm going to use the term, I know everybody hates it, but but it was this hair metal thing, which, by the way, I don't find that term derogatory. I have to say it, 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 it is what it was back then. Then we did the Ronnie Lee Keel stuff, you know, country when in the 90s when things started getting a little more difficult for for everyone. Uh, and then you got back to Iron Horse and, and uh, talking about having sort of to to adapt and, and stay current and stay relevant and then just getting a, th- that freedom to be able to do whatever you want. I guess that's just who I am, Mitch. And really, I don't know that I had to do that. Uh, certainly could have just continued with hair metal and put another band together called it Keel with four other long haired guys and continued to do what some of my peers and contemporaries did or are doing. I just felt like, you know, some of the superstars that I grew up at really admiring, people like David Bowie and Cher, some of these larger than life superstars that have always continued to reinvent themselves along the way. And uh, it, it's it's not only, it's fun. It's, it's like changing clothes or, uh, you know, shaving the beard off or whatever. I mean, you, you, you get to, uh, to explore different aspects of your personality. And at this stage of the game, I'm proud to be able to do what I want to do. I don't have to do anything. I am able to express myself and create the band that I would like to be a part of and the band that I would like to see if I was out there buying a ticket and to make albums that I would buy. Uh, albums that I will enjoy and cherish for the rest of my life because I can't please everybody. I'm really in the business of pleasing Ron Keel, and hopefully some other people will enjoy the ride as well. Uh, the fact, and I say this all the time, it's getting to be a worn out Ron Keel quote, but I got to say it again. The fact that I sold 3 million records means that billions of people don't like what I do. And I get that. I'm cool with that. And I just want to please myself. My favorite albums are the ones that I can listen to 10 years later and still be proud and happy and entertained. Yeah, and uh, I'll just mention this for folks. The uh, Rock and Roll Hell track with Troy and Jeff and Eric, which was on that Kiss tribute, is also on the Metal Cowboy Reloaded CD. So you get that bonus track. And um, it was my pleasure, by the way, to, to don't, I mean, I, I know that sounds self-serving, but it was, I, I, it's my pleasure to let you use it and, and have it because I think it's a great track and it deserves to get out there as much as possible. It is a perfect track as a bonus track for the Metal Cowboy Reloaded album, Mitch, and I do appreciate that. You own that master, and uh, just to include that as part of my Metal Cowboy Reloaded album release, really proud to have it on there, and um, yeah. that album is available at uh, from EMPmerch.com, and they did a great job with the remix, remastering, and all of that, and just wait till you hear this new album. Uh, it comes out March 1st on EMP Label Group. Fight Like a Band, and uh, we're going to be doing our album release party just next week, February 23rd, right around the corner, a huge album release party in Larchwood, Iowa, at the it's the uh, Grand Falls Casino, uh, a place that's just over the, the Sioux Falls, Iowa border, and really looking forward to playing these songs live for the first time. We haven't played any of these songs in concert yet, waiting until the release party where we'll do the album in its entirety on February 23rd. And, We'll probably throw a lot of these songs into the set list for Keel Fest as well on May 10th. Yeah, so that's what I want to get to next. Uh, Keel Fest. I mean, not a lot of bands get a, a whole festival named after them, but Keel Fest sounds like an absolute uh, party. Now, it is on May 10th, as you said, in uh, at the uh, Al Rosa Villa in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, 
Unfortunately, I'm in New York that night, but uh, talk to me about this fest. Is this sort of a one and done kind of thing or is there hopes that we can do a 2020 and a 2021? Is, Is this like the beginning of something or is this like, hey, folks, if you don't show up, tough luck. You know, you never know, Mitch. I take it one song at a time, one show at a time. I would love to do more of them. I'd like to take this thing to the West Coast. I'd like to take it to Canada. Uh, Japan would be a great market for this as well. Europe, Australia. I don't know. I don't know. That's not up to me. The, the way it came about was the fact that the guys in Kiel, Mark Ferrari, Brian Jay, Dwayne Miller, those guys are, are that's a brotherhood, man. They're, we've been best friends now for 35 years. And, uh, I just love, there's a lot of love in that band and my focus and my priority is Ron Kiel band because that's my business. That's my career. That's my job. So trying to feed both dogs, how do I do that? Because uh, the guys in Kiel want to play, but Mark and Brian only play with Kiel. They don't have other projects, other bands. Uh, like Dwayne Miller, the drummer in Kiel, he has several other bands. He's extremely active. I'm extremely active, always singing, performing, writing, creating, and releasing records. So it was kind of a joke that I, I, I thought of the idea, and I just reg- registered the domain name, keelfest.com, a couple of years ago. Because I'm a domain whore, I will. If, if I think of something, I'm going to register the domain. And I thought about it, and thought, how cool would it be to uh, to have all of my friends under one roof on the same stage on the same night, and invite Rick Fox, the bass player from Steeler, who played on that legendary Steeler album, and uh, Mitch Perry, who uh, replaced Ingve Malmsteen in Steeler in the summer of 1983. And at one point, I even considered bringing Iron Horse and Fair Game, <laughs> trying to make it a real family reunion. But that gets expensive and very complicated logistically. So uh, I decided to, well, first of all, there's been a huge demand for Ron Kilbane in the Columbus, Ohio area. Uh, I spent a couple of years there, as you know, with Iron Horse. Two of the guys in the Ron Keel band, Gino Arce and David Cawthorn, are both uh, from Columbus. Gino actually relocated there with me in the summer of 2000 to uh, form Iron Horse. So we have deep roots in that area. So there's been a demand for the Ron Keel band to come back to Columbus. It's been a few years. And I pitched the idea to a promoter there, a friend of mine, uh, Mitzi Tong and Jeff Tong. They have Tong Productions. They said, how do we get RKB to Columbus? And I said, I don't know, but what about this? Keel Fest with Keel, Steeler, Ron Keel band. They bit. They they're excited about the idea. Tickets are selling rapidly. Uh, the El Rosa only holds about 650 people, so I'm expecting a capacity sellout and a great opportunity for the Ron Keel Band to go out and promote the new album while being a part of that package with Keel and our legacy and our 30 plus year history and Steeler, who has not uh, done a show of any kind in over three decades. So to have uh, Rick Fox from the Steeler album and Mitch Perry on stage with me doing a, a little tribute to Steeler with some of those songs from the record. And it's going to be a great gig. Uh, grueling vocally for me, because it's not band break band break. It is one solid three hour show. Uh, it's going to take you through the entire twists and turns of my career and uh, hence very taxing vocally for me. But I think I'm up to the challenge. I'm excited about the opportunity and I'd love to take this, Anywhere else we can take it, whether uh, if other promoters and other venues and markets are interested, they can contact me at ronkeel.com and we'll try and bring Keelfest to a city near you. 
Oh, that would be great. We'll see what we can do for uh, for the Canadian markets. I, I have a few tricks up my sleeve, so we'll see about that. Uh, just quickly, that first Steeler album, well, the only Steeler album. Um, talk to me about about what the band dynamic was like working with Ingve Momstein, because the, the the rumors over the year has been he's a bit difficult to work with, and blah, blah, blah. how was it for you? Was he? Was it difficult to work with the band, and that's why there's only one album, and everybody went their separate ways? Was it just the wrong band at the wrong time, and and moving on to Keel and forming Keel was just a better business decision? Um, all that, okay, yeah, all so, that, and basically hindsight is always twenty twenty. The the wrong band at the wrong time, and and I'll share the blame. Ingve uh, had his vision, I had my vision, and they just were not the same. If we were, if we could have been perhaps mature enough or intelligent enough or whatever you want to call it to, to accept each other. And, uh, you know, I equate the relationship very much to David Lee Roth and Edward Van Halen because Edward is a musical genius and David's a rock star. And uh, I, I felt the same way about Ingve and myself. He is a musician of the highest caliber and me. I've always been that entertainer. I don't like to, to use the word rock star in describing myself. Uh, I think that's a term that, other people have to bestow upon you. I don't, I, but I'm an entertainer and I'm the guy who wanted to get wild and crazy and put on a show. And he's the musician that could have been a great combination. Had we been able to work it out, but we're both uh, young and stubborn and we were both committed to our vision. Uh, it did work out for me pretty well because as, as soon as I broke Steeler up and formed Keel within nine months, we had two albums out. Gene Simmons had produced our right, right to rock major label debut we were on tour and on the cover of the the big rock magazines on MTV, and that was uh, that all happened very quickly. And uh, I'm I'm appreciative of of, of that success, but uh, who knows what might have been if uh, Ingve and I had worked it out, or if I had stayed in Black Sabbath, or or whatever. Man, hindsight is always 2020, and I've got my face firmly forward and looking forward. To, I, I I treasure my past, the accomplishments, yeah. the history, the legacy, all that. But I live for today. And I fight for tomorrow. I believe that we're all on a one-day contract. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to any of us. So I'm going to live my life today to its fullest and hope for the best. So, all right. And I'll ask you about the, the, the musical visions in a second. But there are two people at the beginning of your career, to me, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong, that seem to have had a great impact you have Mike Varney, who folks who are in the rock world will know he owns Shrapnel and has albums out by you know jason becker and and steve Vai and the, the whole thing uh and then you've got gene simmons for you who's the one that sort of really set you straight and got you on the path uh, i mean i know keel the band itself with the songs and all i got you the next level with mtv play but but who's the one guy if you had to look back between mike and gene or is it somebody else and, and say you know if it wasn't for that guy in my life I'm not sure I'd be here today in terms of rock star. There are many of the myths, probably too many to mention right now. Those two certainly deserve their, their due and their credit in my career history. Mike Varney gave me, gave me an opportunity to make my first album. And we, we both uh, enjoyed the success of that Steeler record. Gene obviously was huge for my career because his endorsement allowed the the kiss army bought the record the first week it came out because gene uh endorsed it 
We sold 90,000 albums that first week of release, really put Keel on the map, and I credit a lot of that to Gene. It was a great song. The Right to Rock is a career song and a, a timeless rock anthem. I'm really proud of the tune. But Gene's name on that record really, really helped, and so I'm appreciative of that. But Man, there was, there was so many people along the way that, that did so much for me. And one was a guy, and we did the first dealer show in L.A. ever, okay? We moved from Nashville to Hollywood, and this is before Ingve in 1981, two years before Ingve joined the band. Steeler does our first show in Hollywood. We took the band and the crew and the truck and the pyro and the lights and the PA and the clothes, and they had a big show. And it cost us a lot of money to make that move to L.A. And we get to this club in North Hollywood, and we set up the whole production, the big show, man, the pyro, lights, the whole deal. And dressed up and did our makeup and did our hair all big. And, you know, we went out there. There's one guy in the audience, one guy, way in the back, and that's it. But we're there to do our show, so we did our show. Like, uh, that's the only way I know how to do it. I don't know how to put the pedal down halfway. When I rehearse, when I sing, when I do a gig, no matter what, I'm always full tilt. So we did our show, pyro, the whole deal, man. I mean, over the top for one guy. And after the show, I figured, well, it's time for my meet and greet, right? So I, I went back to the guy and he's just a clean cut guy, beard, you know, sitting in the back, having a cocktail. I said, Hey man, thanks for uh, being here tonight. Hope you enjoyed the show. And he said, Man, that was amazing how you did that for just one guy. And uh, my name is Joe Benson. I'm with KLOS Radio, and I'm going to play you on the radio. And he did. He, he launched Steeler on the KLOS local music show on Sunday night and really put us on the map in Hollywood. All of a sudden, we're getting airplay on the big rock station. This is before KNAC. This is KLOS Radio, big, uh, big market, big station. And so many thousands of people heard us on Joe's show. Really, man, what a huge break that was to all of a sudden be getting that airplay. And he started to play some other bands like Rat and Great White. And uh, Steeler was right there in the mix. And it gave us all that uh, credibility and exposure to really take over that Hollywood scene in 1981, 82. And that, to me, was, was as huge a break as any that I could cite in my career history. Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a great story. And, and it reminds me a little bit of what Brett Michaels once told me. He says, you don't play to the empty seats. You play to the fans that are there. And he says, it doesn't matter if it's four or four thousand or forty thousand. And it's true. You, you if four people showed up, you got to give him a show. You can't just call. And, and I, I appreciate that work ethic. Now, the the Black Sabbath stuff, we have touched upon it in other interviews in the past but not here at Westwood One so let's, let me just quickly get that story because I, I love it because when you research it it says Ron Keel joined band late March 1984 left band early April 90, 1984 so it's like well what does that mean is that a week is that two weeks is that a month <laughs> you know um, so talk to me about hanging out with Tony and Geezer and 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 I guess Spencer Pop proffer was in the was in the mix there too and in, in terms of trying to guide you people what what was that story and what happened how did it happen was anything recorded was it just rehearsals was it just hanging out at the sunset marquee what was what's the story well the uh 
short-lived history of Black Sabbath and my history with them continues to live on with this new release, Emerald Sabbath, just came out yesterday. And we'll get to we'll get to that once I lay the foundation for the story. But this was uh, it was March of '84, and I was cutting the Keel Keel demos at Pasha Studios, which Spencer Proffer, that was his place there in Hollywood, and he had just produced. Uh, the Quiet Riot Metal Health album, which really opened up the floodgates for all of us back in the day. And I was cutting the Keel demos there, and Spencer heard my voice uh, just in passing, walking down the hallway. He was signed on to produce the new Sabbath record after Ian Gillen had left, and he was uh, helping them with their search for a singer. He got me the gig. Basically, I had a contract signed, uh, met with uh, Tony and Geezer. They heard the demo that I cut. Uh, some outside songs. Spencer was pushing some outside material to Tony and Geezer, which probably didn't didn't help matters any. Trying to make them into an '80s hair metal band and take away the identity that that makes Sabbath who they are. Uh, but we had a an interesting time working out uh, some band meetings, uh, some meetings with Don Arden, Sharon's father, who was uh, Sabbath's manager at the time. He laid down the law to me, the Riot Act. You know, I had a contract, the pace structure was settled, and I was a hired gun, basically. And they were under, I was under strict orders not to say a word to anybody. I was at a gag order. Do not tell anyone this news cannot get out. All right. So, of course, it's Sabbath. I'm doing what the hell I'm told, right? Um, I went to my band, the guys in Keel, and we'd only been together a few weeks at the time. And we, they'd worked so hard, and they'd learned my songs, and we built the show, and we were just about to do what was going to be the first and last Keel show ever on April 7th, uh, 1984. And I set the guys in the band down and I said, look, guys, I got to take this opportunity, man. It's Black Sabbath. It's a once in a lifetime chance. It's the most iconic metal band of all time. And I'm the new lead singer in Sabbath. And I, I appreciate your understanding and your time and your hard work. And they all they understood. They got it. Mark Ferrari and the guys in the band, they were cool with it. I just said, man, just don't tell anybody, all right? Uh, you can't leak any of this news. It, it just can't get out there, all right? Shh. So they all agreed. No, they weren't going to tell anybody. And I said, all right, guys, thanks. And I literally left the band meeting, got out and into my car, started the car, and there was, here it is, KLOS Radio again, entering the story. Here's two plugs for KLOS in the same interview. But I turned on the radio, and of course, I'm listening to KLOS in Los Angeles, and the DJ comes on. And announces, it's just been announced that Ron Keel is the new lead singer in Black Sabbath. And I go, no, no, I wasn't telling anybody. I didn't leak the news. I don't know where the, the leak came from. But uh, as soon as I get home, you turn on MTV. And, of course, there it is. On MTV, Martha Quinn saying, Ron Keel has now been announced as the new lead singer in Black Sabbath. And you open up the next edition of Kerrang! magazine. And I think it was a half-page story about me joining Black Sabbath. Well, I never leaked the news. And I don't think that's what pissed him off. I'm not sure what pissed him off, but I think it was the deal with Spencer because he was trying to make them into an 80s hair metal band with radio-friendly songs and all this crap. And that's not Sabbath. It's just not who they are. And it's, it was a bad move for them. Spencer, I guess, thought he was powerful enough to even control the mighty Black Sabbath. But uh, the deal went south, imploded, and I went south with it because I was Spencer's guy, quote, unquote. I was Spencer's boy. Um, th they went through a, a tough period after that, uh, with, uh, what was it? Seven star Tony Iommi's black Sabbath and seventh star. And some of those 
other releases that that followed in uh, 85, 86, and so forth. But uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be a small part of the tapestry or the, the that is Black Sabbath, and it's given me the opportunity to participate in this new Emerald Sabbath release, as I mentioned. Yeah. It just came out yesterday. Yep. And this is an all-star tribute record featuring 10 ex-members of Sabbath and other people like Rudy Sarzo that are uh, part, part of the Aussie slash Sabbath family. Yep. And I, I was able to sing three songs on this record. Yep. Uh, I, I got to do an Aussie song, Hole in the Sky, which is classic, a Dylan song, Trashed off Born Again and a Ronnie James Dio song, Die Young from the Heaven and Hell album. So I got to cover the vocals of all three of those iconic singers and participate in this record and with some great players. I mean, Vinny Apice did the drums, uh, Robbie Rondinelli did the drums on Trashed, uh, uh, Rudy Sarzo, of course, uh, on bass uh, on Die Young, and DT yep. Cawthorn from my Ron Keel band on lead guitar on Die Young. So I'm really, really proud of this new Sabbath tribute record emerald sabbath ninth star yeah and you've got uh bev bev bevan or beven also yeah. on trashed and i'm here i'm just going to look at this uh who else is on here where, where, where oh else? is it bev on trashed is really i, I yeah. know this well according to the, the press release i'm reading here you've got die young ron keel Vinny apacy rudy sarzo dc cawthorn pete rinaldi yep. and ellen morgan on Trash, it's Ron Keel, Vinny Apice, Bev Bevan, Lawrence Cottle, Pete Rinaldi, and Hole in the Sky, Ron Keel, Bobby Rondinelli, Lawrence Cottle, and Pete Rinaldi. That's right. So, That's so right. yeah. I didn't know that stuff, but man, I was just happy to sing on this, these tracks. The the release is a, it's, it's a dream come true. Finally, I get to live that Black Sabbath dream at last and, and sing those songs. And That's 35 years later. I mean, uh, what might have been is... is up to up for speculation, but at least I got to sing with Sabbath in in this shape and form. I'm really proud of this release, and now can't wait to uh, to until everybody hears it. So let me ask you two questions about this. Be- because you covered sort of three Sabbath vocalists, was there anyone in particular that was easier or particularly more difficult? Is it easier to sort of cop an an Aussie feel, or is it easier to be Ian Gill? You know what I mean? I mean vocally for you, which one was like, oh, I got this one, and oh, shit, this one I got to work on, because that's, I don't know what that guy was doing there. You know, I got tasked, I, I got tasked with the uh, the session, and I was assigned trashed. Okay, Ron, this is your song. And what, I, I couldn't say no. I had to rise to the occasion, but I was concerned. Let's put it that way. That song is, uh, it's it's maniacal, to say the least, and the the pacing of the vocal and the, the high pitch of the vocal is certainly uh i mean it's it's a screamer and i went into the studio and i got to half about halfway through the first verse i said okay this is cool i got this um and from then on it was what you know just go in there believing that you can do it i pride myself on the ability to go into the studio and get results now at this stage of the game when i was younger i could not uh even on the first several keel records i really didn't know what the hell i was doing in the studio at this stage of the game, I do. I can walk in there and I've got just the right amount of focus and uh, freedom and confidence and uh, vocal control to where I can make, make the pipes do pretty much what I want them to do. But all three songs on this record were very challenging. I think, of course, Ronnie James Dio is known, respected, and loved as one of the greatest rock and metal singers of all time. 
So I think it was a little more daunting to try and do that song justice, Die Young, uh, which, uh, and Ronnie was a friend of mine. Ronnie took us on tour in Europe in 86 as the opening act on his Sacred Heart tour. He was a big supporter of uh, both Steeler and Keel. And he was a friend. He was a, a mentor. He was an idol. So to follow in his vocal footprint, so to speak, uh, that's a huge order. And uh, I do believe that Ronnie is looking down from rock and roll heaven and uh, appreciates the job that I did on Die Young. I sure hope so. Tried to do him justice. Nobody can uh, nobody can cover Ronnie, uh, but I did the best I could, and I'm, I'm really proud of it. I think it sounds really good. I, I like it. I'm proud of it, and I hope the fans will uh, agree. Yeah, I think I think they will, and hopefully when we get to a Keel Fest, maybe you'll throw one of those in there just as a little uh, ear candy, just to tease the folks. But uh, yeah, Ron- that's got to happen, Mitch. Black Sabbath has got to be on the set list for Keel Fest. I agree. I, I agree, and and always a pleasure to talk to you. And I've got to say, I, I I always throw that in here when somebody talks about uh, Ronnie James Dio. My own quick little personal story. Years ago, he was um, working with him and Wendy this um, organization called Children of the Night that gets uh, young girls that are, you know, thrown out of their home, working the streets. They get them off the streets and into this center. And um, I had been pitched this interview with Ronnie and they said, listen, you can talk to Ronnie, but we're not doing Sabbath. We're not doing Dio. It is only about this center. That is it. That is all. And I did the interview and I respected the rules and uh, at the end of it, he said, you know what? Everybody else asked me one question about this. And then they spent all their time asking about Sabbath and stuff. And you respected the rules. And, and, and he was very uh, appreciative of that. And um, he then invited me to a show and, you know, all access pass and come and meet me and get a picture and all that. And he really had didn't had, had no reason to do any of that. And it's just that that speaks to the kind of person that Ronnie was. He was just exceptionally kind and, um, you know, I've always just had a lot of respect for, for that. And, you know, this was years ago when I was just nothing, nobody and just, Hey, you're going to go hang out with Ronnie. He didn't have to do any of that. And that's the kind of guy he was. So I just, yeah, I, he I, was. Yeah. 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 And I just want to One of keep... the nicest guys in our business. I appreciate the story. Great to hear that as well, man. Yeah. And I'm sure that I'm part. sure he did the same thing with you when he took out Keel and, and your bands. It probably because he had a genuine appreciation and respect for for you and the band and said, yeah, I'm going to help these guys. And, you know, that's then I'm assuming that's what he did. But but anyway, yeah, yeah. Did, have you ever heard the story about how Ronnie James Dale and I met? No, I have not. Favorites. So let's let's hear that one. <laughs> All right. I, this is uh, Steeler backstage at the Roxy in Hollywood. And of course, being a huge Ronnie James Dio and Sabbath fan. Uh, my road manager comes up after the gig and says to the dressing room, says, Ronnie James Dio's outside. He wants to meet you and say hello. And I go, oh, my God, bring him in. So I'm so excited to meet Ronnie James Dio. It's one of my heroes, one of my idols. And, you know, I'm people who may, may not know. I'm, I'm 6'4", so I'm a pretty tall guy. Ronnie James Dio, not the tallest guy, but a, a man of immense stature. But, you know, he was a short dude. You know, he walks in to the dressing room. And we shake hands, and I look down at him, and I'm really looking down at him because he's really short, and I'm really tall. And I and I did not say this on purpose, but it's just kind of just blurted it out. Ronnie James Dio, I've always looked up to you. 
<laughs> and I think we were friends from that moment on. So, uh, that's, you know, I've, I've always looked up to you. Really, you say that to a guy who's half your size, you know, but uh, what a man, what a, what a, what a, larger than life. Uh, and both his heart, his voice, his music. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to sing one of his songs on this new Emerald Sabbath record and to talk to you about it on Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Man, thanks so much hey. for having me on the show. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Always welcome. And of course, Fight Like a Band is out March 1st on EMP Outlaw, which of course is the Southern Rock imprint of Dave Ellison's uh, label EMP and of course uh, Tom Hazart as well. And uh, you can also head over to fightlikeaband.com to pre-order it, which is exciting. There you go. That is correct. Thank you so much, Mitch. And I'll talk to you again soon, buddy. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. You got it. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.